Hi, I'm Caitlin Kadju, an animator and illustrator. And I'm Ira Marks. I write and draw comics. And this is a podcast about the mysterious and magical process of bringing cartoon stories to life. And in today's episode, we're going back to the past, the most magical origins, per se. We're talking about the 1957 episode of the Disneyland show, Mars and Beyond. Blast off. To cartoon feelings. Welcome to mid-century feelings, Caitlin. Ooh, I have a lot of those, actually. I'm very passionate about this. Okay, well, this is. I think this episode is primed for it, because for those of you who have seen Mars and Beyond, not a whole lot of content. It's all vibe, <laughs> and it's all just cool animation, but there's, it's, not, it's not like, it's not an Akira. No, um, and the content that is there is all really outdated. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think it's important to note. Yeah, it turns out speculating on Mars in 1957 <laughs> didn't yield really any crucial knowledge Wrong for the future. On most of, maybe we should have done like a like an accuracy counter for this episode. Like how many things did they guess <laughs> that turned out to be correct? That's another type of show. That's a, sh- a show for people that like to focus on the negative. Oh, that's true. We're here. I am, I am chastened. <laughs> We're here to uh, we're here to paint the picture of so mid mid century nineteen so this came out in nineteen fifty seven as someone has said December fourth according uh, to Wikipedia oh nice holiday special um, well we'll get into the details of the production soon enough but I thought this would be a fun opportunity to just talk about the art and culture and stuff that probably influenced this work of Disney history. Almost certainly, Ira. So you like the the mid-century stuff in general? Yes. I believe that this has come up at some point on this podcast before, probably. I don't remember the context, but... Oh, you know, probably when we're talking about Pixar, because Brad mm, Bird's yeah, yeah, I know, world yeah. is very... Which, I mean, it's just... ish but... Maybe it's worth it to just say now that, like, even today, mid-century influence is pretty prevalent in a lot of animation. I don't know if it's just yeah. because a lot of animators now came up in that time you know obviously there's like younger people as well um and it's pretty easy to again watch old stuff like this uh on disney plus where you can find mars and beyond if you hadn't seen it uh because i hadn't seen it but the mid-century era of disney is probably my favorite overall really just aesthetically more Mm -hmm. than anything else and not to get on like too far of a tangent, but just in general, I seem to really gravitate towards that kind of stuff. There's something about it, including Mars and Beyond, that has a very soothing quality to me. And I think it has something to do with the audio, but mm. I can't quite place it. But I get the same feeling when I, I like I a few years ago I watched all the old um Twilight Zones. Yeah. 
And there's just something about that that just, like, makes me just, like, want to wrap up on, like, a rainy day and just watch those. And I just, like, feel so safe for some reason. And I have no idea where that comes from. But there's just something about stuff in, made in that time period that has a magical quality. The audio, yeah. I mean, I feel like most things actually come down to the musical elements that really connect you with something. So, like, for example, the uh, transitioning chimes that you get when something gets wishy-washy as it moves into, like, another mm-hmm. scene that's, like, very prominent in this era of, like, Disney stuff. And just that kind of, it's, like, warm, jazzy, sometimes Dixieland-ish like a uh, big brassy instrument stuff. Yeah. Right? Again, like another thing that Pixar is just like, they just took it and ran with it. Yeah. A lot of influence from that. And I have some story stuff. I, when we get to talking about um, some of the stories that were important at this time, that there's still the story tropes we see today about how people explore space, like in a movie, even like, you know, when we're recording this, there's like a new Buzz Lightyear movie coming out. It's very 50s and it's like journey journeyman adventure like man explores the great beyond like what will it evoke in his character like it's still i know like buzz lightyear's trying to be a little more woke because it's like okay it's not just about that one dude don't worry we put uh we mixed it up with all his friends (laughs) but in general it's still just like the white dude goes to space and sees what's out there and only he can have such an adventure that's very 50s i'd kind of forgotten but that's sort of like the whole buzz lightyear and Woody vibe, which feels very discordant with the like, ostensibly like '90s time period that Toy yeah. Story is taking place in. Um, for Woody to be like, I'm a cowboy toy, I'm the hot thing, and then he gets displaced by a space toy. Like that feels very much like the turn of the century. And then like, oh uh, yeah, you know, space race starts happening, and then that's like the contemporary modern thing, right? Uh, and I think then they kind of backtrack that in Toy Story too, where actually Woody's like a vintage toy from the olden days. Yeah. Because that makes oh, a yeah. lot more huh. sense. Right. Uh, and in the first movie, when there's no backstory, it's just kind of like, yeah, cowboys old. Oh, those are the past. You know, it's hot as spacemen. <laughs> it's interesting that that was the story a uh, conflict that they chose. I found a really a book I had read as a kid. So the uh Robert Robert A Heinlein who did like Stranger in a Strange Land, he had this book called The Red Planet which is marketed as like YA adventure in Mars and that kind of well we have John Carter of Mars which at Disney like had tried to adapt a couple times and then like bombed big time with that movie. Like do you remember when John Carter of Mars came out. My and, like, dad loves it. John Carter. Like, it's kind he, of fun. It's he not loved the worse. books and yeah. he loved the movie. Yeah. Like he maintains to this day that it was like unfair, the treatment it received. And yeah. I watched it with him and I, it is fun. Like yeah. there's nothing about it that I was like, wow, this sucks. I hate it. I and mean, it's been a while since I've seen it, but mm-hmm. I, I don't understand. I think it was the last stand of that kind of Edgar Rice Burroughs just playing it straight. It's like, it's a, it's the guy, his shirt's going to come off. He's going to a desert planet without it being like, I don't know, Star Wars tweaked it enough where it was like space adventure, but for everyone somehow. But like John Carter, not quite because the woman is still just like a, a thing yeah, he acquires. Yeah, still very pulpy. Yeah. Very like, I'm in a foreign place. Right. The aliens foreigners. are all completely unrelatable. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, this, ro- okay, I just want to read you about this um, Robert Robert A. Heinlein book, Red Planet, 1949. Uh, It's a story of Jim Marlowe, a teenage colonist from Earth. Um, Hate him already. (laughs) So it's it's just, it's, uh, it's, it's, oh, I love finding something from a year that I don't expect there to be things like this out. So here's the book cover. It's got like a kid with kind of a plague mask 
but it's a space helmet. And you see he's got a little kind of Pixar-y looking cartoon buddy. Oh, my God. So the story is... It's like BB-8. Yeah, exactly. It's just a a circle with eyes. Like a bowling ball, but robot. Right. And um, so Jim Marlowe, just on on a teen colonist living at a boarding school, and his headmaster is part of the Martian Corporation for something. I don't know. I guess this corporation also runs the school. And, of course, the headmaster is involved involved in some seedy dealings. So... What? Jim goes <laughs> off to find his parents on the far side of the galaxy and brings his little cute round friend with him. And then they encounter all types of other friends and shenanigans. And then they befriend the aliens who the grownups couldn't get along with. And the aliens help set the colonists free. It's like all those story beats are things you see all the way up through even like definitely the 80s. Whenever kids went on an adventure in the 80s, it was always like, the kids are right, grownups. Yeah. You know? And they are. It's it's that same type of story. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember finding this book as a kid. And um, But I, I think that is to say that, like, all this stuff from the 50s does have a long tail of, like, oh, we're just going to keep telling these stories until people really protest. <laughs> <laughs> and they haven't <laughs> like, yet. No, it always comes back to some degree. We're still doing it. The speculation of, of what's base has in store for us well what's very interesting is like now we're making movies like the martian which we just watched yeah. recently like by happenstance and i enjoyed that movie for what it is but it's just like it's just a survival movie vaguely about space stuff kind of and i'm like okay so mm-hmm. we we've moved beyond the like what if we had technology to da, da, da. and now it, it's almost like boring that he's on mars in a way right you know it's not like <laughs> that's not like super flashy no except for the magnitude of the problem it right. is it's just more like all right like how do we you know what's the math problem it's gonna get me out of this yeah and like that's what we're doing now but we're still like mars yeah <laughs> let's go we know there's nothing there now <laughs> right it's not like that the idea of mars the speculation of what it holds in store for us is uh purely in our imagination right in the way like it just doesn't hold that magic anymore because there are too many photos of it i guess right yeah it's like, kind of crazy i mean not to I don't want to take away from the majesty of that. And it's definitely, it's like a thing where we've, I've flown a bunch of times in my life, but mm-hmm. I still, when I take off an airplane, try to a- appreciate how crazy it is, you know? And right, just be right. Like, this is very commonplace for me as a person in the world today, but I need to be like, wow, let me just appreciate the majesty of this moment. Mm-hmm. I want to feel that way about space. You know, a lot of people do, but it is, there's, it's hard. You can't look at it and be like, I wonder what aliens could be up there because there is uh, none of them and it uh, <laughs> it's interesting right and, like it, it's just not the same i don't even think it's like necessarily a that a sad, sad thing but it's kind of bittersweet maybe mm-hmm. that you just you can't wonder like that question has been answered yeah and i think that's the magic of like you were saying there this mid-century disney moment is very important right because it's it's disney himself trying to transition from just making movies into like world building right like we get the the r what is it the r d department that becomes the imagineers is that what we call mm-hmm. it r d or r and um it's w-e-d it? i think it's right it's okay yeah walt elias disney right so he's developing this idea in mid 50s uh the television is in people's homes this is how and we've people... never recovered no we, have, we never looked back <laughs> And Walt Disney's like, okay, I can, I can put myself in this space. So in in this era, he he has a series, he has a deal with CBS, right? It's CBS Studios I think so, yeah. to make these short 
films about the what Disneyland will be because it's not open yet. It's this project. This this kind of like uh, TV experiment is a way for him to kind of tell the world about Disneyland, right? And I think that's why this feels like essential Disney because I don't know about you, but I saw a lot of these specials. These like wonderful World of Disney specials would just be running through my childhood, and they were all from this era when it's like. What does Fantasyland have in store for you? Like the the heart of a child. Um, Not the actual heart, but like the spirit of a child. (laughs) I love that there's an ad at the end of Mars and Beyond on Disney Plus for the next week's episode. And it's the horse of the West. (laughs) And it like all the verve and the pomp and circumstance inherent to that apparently. And it's very fun and funny to watch that. Right. But yeah, it's like, oh, frontier. We're going to Frontierland. Today we were in Tomorrowland, you know? And right. now we're going to go. It was just all about what's cool. Like, what are cool adventure things that are neat and that makes people think about stuff? Yeah. That was Disney's whole deal. I didn't get to watch these growing up. Like, Oh, no? Okay. And, well, I, I'd never seen this until maybe a couple years ago, I actually. Mm. I watched this for the first time. Uh, but I feel deprived in a way because I would have loved it. Yeah. I love it now. I think it's great. It's almost weird that I didn't see it because I just feel like you can see some of this stuff in the work that I do. Oh, totally. Uh, While we were talking before we started recording, I feel like this was my the, – the introduction to you and your work. That I had like met you uh, slightly before this, but you had done a piece for The Atlantic back when you worked for The Atlantic. You did an animated short um, based on an essay – by what was her name? Nora, Nora Johnson. Nora Johnson about what was it called? The Oh, Sex and the College Girl. Uh titillating. Yeah. <laughs> Look it up. It's total it's safe for work. Yeah. And you had done an animated piece that was like very much in this mid century style. Yeah. Like very flat, graphical, kind of collagey texture, gouache. Yeah, and it was feeling. It was cool. I had so many thoughts now because I've been reading so much lately about the the history and development of like the look of animation around this time period. And I feel like the thought process is the same. I was talking to you about this before we started recording as well, that this Mars and Beyond and videos like it are what I did for The Atlantic. And then later a little bit at Vox Mm -hmm. to a lesser degree, sort of. Uh, But it's all kind of the same thing. It's basically like we're telling you history or we're, you know, speculating about the possibility of stuff. And we're showing it to you in animation, either to make it clear or to be funny so you remember it, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. Apparently, like, I think the UPA studio did a lot of this where they just were like, okay, well, we can just do whatever we want stylistically. What's UPA stand for? Do you uh, know? A United Productions of America. Okay. I believe. I wasn't trying to throw no, it No, I was like, the is I it? Sure. I always want to say pictures. I don't, I think it's production. Okay. But this was, for those who don't know, it was like the TV animation studio of the 50s and maybe the 60s. Uh, and you've, Almost certainly seen some of their work at some point, whether you're aware of it or not. But the people that worked there really wanted to pursue the modern graphical style. Uh, and then they wanted to kind of be able to do new stuff and experiment as well. So they would let the content of each project dictate the look, um, which is exactly what I did at The Atlantic, which mm-hmm. is great and not great, you know, depending on the circumstances, because it's hard. you can't really get a lot of feedback and direction from people if you're if you're making it up like that. But it's nice that the people you're working on these videos for don't know animation. So you also, you get to just take charge a little bit. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had a series, I think it was the Atlantic Archives that we were doing animations of for a while because the Atlantic is a thousand years. No, it's like a hundred something years old. I think 160 something years old. Uh, and it has quite a bit, quite a backlog and a lot of really cool and interesting people have written for it over the decades. 
And so we would get to go back and find interesting essays and like funny essays and just cut it down and turn it into an animation. And Mm -hmm. then that one must have been, I don't remember exactly the year, but it was from the 50s or the 60s. And I was like, oh, yeah, like I get to make it in the style of this cartoon. So I just got to do it that way. I did another one that was uh, by Helen Keller and it was from the 1920s or 30s. And so I did it in like black and white kind of rubber hose style. Yeah, yeah. So it's fun. I was like, I just get to lean into this and get to work in uh, animation styles that I really like. But that's not the only video I've done where mid-century style shows up. And it's like, it's kind of hard for me to not do it. Right. Sort of. Because I, I just really like it. <laughs> yeah, I think it, to me, it seemed, well, this, again, it comes back to why this era of aesthetic is like so important. Of course, there's like a million like problematic aspects of culture at this time. But mm-hmm. like graphic art in its fusion with illustration and painting has just come to like this magical moment. So you've got, this is like what movement is prominent. This is like art, uh, abstract expressionism, right? So it's like everything's been reduced to like simple forms, like Henry Matisse. Is, okay, so I, I, I was reading something about Henry Matisse that was cool. So he got colon cancer and he lost the ability to, uh, his motor skills started to like break down. So there's photos of him like working from his bed and being an expressionist, you know, his his forms are all already like very kind of primitive and they're, everything's like flattening through yeah. this time. And then there's pictures of him with a long stick like drawing up on the wall. And this is like that era where everything's just being, I didn't realize these pieces were done this way, but it's stuff from the late 40s. Like I think there's a piece called Jazz Something that's just basic shapes. <laughs> It's called jazz something. It's something everything's That's the a mess actual in my brain. <laughs> I have notes somewhere for details, but who cares? So he's working very simply. Everything's flat and graphical. And then um, he even moves into collage. Like after he's no longer able to paint, he has assistants like cutting out pieces and he starts gluing them together. The dream. And, like, and that that is all like early 50s. And then Ward Kimball, some of these art, like this is why also this era and these like the nine old men and their contemporaries, all these people seems so crucial. It's kind of that last generation that was experimenting with um, traditional like mediums in all kinds of weird ways, right? There's someday we can do an episode about the like four, uh, four artists, one tree special. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. So while it's, it's this weird little short where Walt Disney picks four of his artists, I don't think it's Ward Kimball, but it's uh, uh, what, what's his name? Who's the sleeping beauty guy? I can never say his name. Ivan right. Earl. Yeah. It's like him, uh, Mark boy. Davis. And two other guys, I can't remember, but they're all iconic mm-hmm. and they all go and paint one tree, but they do it in their like art school styles. Oh, I love and it's, they all, and then they explain their practice and mm-hmm. it's all just digging into like eras of art history that you're like, oh my God, I don't believe Mark Davis was inspired by that. Um, and it's so cool. Cause I feel like that's the Disney vibe in this area. You, and the reason probably you're like, oh, I'm doing something kind of educational and informative. It ties to this era. Cause like Disney at this time is like, the human experiment. Let's try to understand it. Horses, what role do they play in <laughs> we the love them economics? So much. Yeah, like Mars, what does that mean for people? Um, I just, and I watched these growing up and I just thinking about them like, oh my God, this is, Disney taught me how to think or painted a picture of what America aspired to do, yeah. which wasn't really true and maybe not even. He was probably putting on a show too. A double-edged sword, yeah. But this is what endeared me to Walt Disney. It's like him bringing like education into art and like, and when we get into the movie, the beginning, I think we both truly love the first like 15 minutes of the Mars and Beyond where it's 
trying to teach you about how humans learn to think about the universe and the way it's done, you're just like, this is why cartooning is the best thing ever invented. I think there's a reason this stuff sticks with people and that's, this is successful and it's why the format has stuck around. Mm -hmm. Although I would argue on personal experience kind of that the the production pipeline, I guess, Hmm. is not as effective. So it's harder to make, and for many other reasons, there's also a million things to watch these days and all of this different stuff. Like it's harder to get things to have longevity and for people to even really pay attention to them. But I think these really stick with people because they are so unique and just weird. Like they're just like, I'm just going to put something weird here because I think it would be fun to animate. And it sort of has to do with what (laughs) the narrative, like the VO is saying. Um, it'll just be fun and people will remember it. And we do. Like one thing that I really love about this show that I doubt is the most memorable thing to most people, but he's just talking about different philosophers through history, uh, talking about, you know, what is our place in, I guess the galaxy. It's like, they don't even know what that is. They're like, is the earth the center of everything? I don't know. And it's it's different busts of these people talking Mm -hmm. in a room. I get like a void, basically talking to each other. And one of them like bumps one of them off and like shatters him while they're like, it's just like, what? But it's just a great way. Like what's a more interesting way to introduce these people Mm -hmm. who are basically characters, uh, give them some kind of place in history in your mind but and you're literally just direct quotes presumably from these individuals and then also giving them like different personalities Ar- arbitrarily it doesn't have right. to be but it's like that's what makes it fun and good because it's not boring yeah and it, I, I i guess i don't know if you find this with your work when you're well this isn't what you do now but at the time when you're doing something that's dealing with like historical documentation that line of um like, this needs to be informative, but it also needs to have the appeal that's going to help you engage with it. And where's that balance? Like, when I, I'd, I'd love to have been there when these animators are deciding on what those busts look like and how silly the voice is, where it's like engaging, but it's not taking away from it. Because that scene really sticks in my mind. It's like, oh, this is when the Dark Ages set in because this one, like, philosophical point of view took over. And that's when he knocks over the bust, who's like, Actually, the sun's at the center. Nope. And the other guy's like, no, the earth is. We are, our ego is king. And then dark ages. And then it zooms in on the eye and it's like a demon claw. Yeah, like monsters' faces are coming out like, well, people were superstitious back then. Woo! Like witches and stuff. Right. It's all so vague. And a lot of that is like, okay, well, now you're just throwing everything in the same pot. It's like, well, okay, occultism and witchcraft, all these things aren't all just evil. But that's the problem with cartooning. It's like sometimes you can simplify something too much too where much, yeah. it becomes uh, objectified in a way yeah. that isn't well, respectful. Yeah, and partially, I guess, like, uh, you can forgive it to some degree because, like, ostensibly this is targeted to children. Okay, so we don't have to include every, you know, but ugly do you, detail. But actually, do you think it is at that time? I honestly don't really know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more of a family entertainment right, thing, okay. but that it's uh, geared it's so like that children can be on way. board. Because if there's no TV before, really, you know, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. I'm like, what? Yeah, but and I anyway, think that's sorry. more like Disney's ethos of being like, I want your children and you to all come here and have a great time. Right, and so the kill the kids are just part of the audience mm-hmm. at least. So then you can forgive some of them for and some of it they just didn't know, which is kind of obvious when you think of the subject matter. It's like they literally don't know what Mars's deal is, and that's kind of you know it was. 1957. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't like how much did they know about the Dark Ages back then? Because 
I am vaguely aware. Nobody quote me on this. I'm not a history expert. But I have been given to understand in the past that the Dark Ages actually were just because we lost a lot of the recording, like the records of the time where people weren't writing. But it Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that people just were like running around in the woods and like Satan worshiping, you know, right. like it, it, it either means that people were documenting things in ways that were just were not sustainable and that we didn't get records of like mm-hmm. paper that, you know, doesn't last or uh, there's a number of other reasons, but people could still have been, be, you know, having scientific thoughts yeah. and like, you know, whatever, like doing a rich culture. Stuff. Can still yeah. Exist. Um, it's just like, we don't, we don't know what people were doing because we don't have a record of it. Right. It sounds, if anything, it could just be as likely that the people in power were afraid of like what everybody else was doing. Like maybe there was a disconnect because you could look back. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like we I feel like we can be like if we look back on our latest political era, if you read the story the wrong way, you're like, oh, people really turned against the the, the president like in a time. Oh, God. Yeah. You know, like in 100 years, somebody would be like, ah, Trump, the hero of a time who really like stood up against. Oh, <laughs> uh, who knows? What a horrible situation. Uh, but anyway. Um, OK, well, just thinking about that just broke my brain for a second. <laughs> OK, I was re- so I, I thought um, I thought we would talk a bit about some of like, I don't know. I just did a little bit of research into what were some of the books and art that I loved that came out of this that I was finding at the library or like kids books that I had in this time. So I don't know if you have any off the top of your head or any kind of list, but I was just going to rattle off a couple things that you're probably also familiar with some of them. Yeah, I'd say go for it and see if it shakes anything loose for me. Okay, so um, I'll list some things. You could rate them on uh, like a Rotten Tomatoes meter if you're familiar with some. (laughs) No, I've never heard of it. Is that some kind of thing from the 50s? Yep, yeah. Um, Okay, what are some things that I – this is all – it's all relevant. It's not like random stuff. So things I was thinking about. Okay, 50s, people are finally studying – they're, they're considering REM sleep as a, a, an important part of the human mind that's developing imagination. And there's actual imaging of this. And I feel like there's something that's like in the scientific studies, the, the science community saying imagination is, is important that led to like Disney latched onto that with a lot of his work and a lot of like kids books and stuff at this time were doing that. So a book I was thinking of is, um, you remember Harold and the Purple Crayon? Yes. Yeah. Iconic. Classic. Like still like a book everybody buys for a kid if yeah. you're like a cool parent. I do feel right? like there are a lot of kids books too from – even I guess like Dr. Seuss might fall into this category. Oh, I got I Dr. Seuss on this The list. height of his work. But yeah, like those are the, the undying children's books that yeah. will just persist forever. So like Harold in, in The Purple Crayon, it's a very like kind of meta book because he's – he draws his world on the pages of the book as if you were a kid drawing in a book. It's like a, it puts your brain in a weird space that I don't think there were really kids books that were doing that before. And then we get like, um, I feel like Disney, because there, there's the Donald Duck special where he's being, is it Donald Duck where he's being chased by the pencil? No, that's a Looney Tunes. Okay. That, it's more of a, a Chuck Duck, Jones yeah. vibe. In fact, I think Mars and Beyond is very Chuck Jonesy, more in the Looney Tunes Oh, yeah. Because of its like weird physics and stuff. Yeah. It's, right? it's like way more gaggy in a way that I guess Disney cartoons had that, but Looney Tunes has clearly been the one that has persisted more in the cultural yeah. mind. Especially in that. this era. I think they were trying to like latch onto the coolness of probably like Warner Brothers y stuff. And- yeah. Well, and like at 
that like this is kind of when that stuff was happening mm-hmm. when like all of the the looney tunes people were steeped in you know they're all working at this time yeah i guess and yeah it makes sense that they were their mindsets were all kind of mingling in right the same juice i guess yeah it's all gross and yeah, weird. The, the same kind of pussy juice mm. um okay so what do you give harold and the purple crayon on the rotten tomato meter uh, 100% based nice. largely in nostalgia because it's been a long time, but I feel like it holds up. Okay. Um, 1952, Tove Jensen. Is that how you say his last name? I actually the, don't know. The Moomin mm, guy? I was not familiar with Moomins. I am vaguely familiar with Moomins now, but I have But you can really... picture them. Yes. Because yeah. I was just thinking some of the aliens in this look very Moomin-y, like French cartoony. Yeah, I wonder how much, because I don't really, I know people that have been Moomin enjoyers, but I don't know that much about them. And so I don't know, like, how how much into the, like, American zeitgeist or whatever were they? I, I don't actually know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, um, have you seen, a, a cartoon we'll do someday is The Fantastic Planet. Oh, we've talked about this. That's from 73. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the look of this, I, I think of The Fantastic Planet, which is a French movie. And also we know another thing we'll talk about someday in 1945, you know, like about 10 years before, Disney started a project with Salvador Dali, like that became, yeah. what is it, Destino or mm-hmm. something? So it's like they're dipping into uh, like European art. It, like Disney is like picking in at some of that. So I wouldn't be surprised if this... If Ward Kimball wasn't being influenced by some European stuff, even though it all feels very Americanized. I don't want to go on a tangent, but I, there's it's interesting that you say that because uh, I was a lot of the stuff that I'll probably pull out of my notes was from this book that I have in front of me, mm-hmm. listeners, um, called Cartoon Modern. And it's pretty good. And it basically just spotlights a lot of the heavy hitting studios of the 50s and 60s the animation like tv animation studios so there's it's upa they got disney in here a bunch of stuff long story short a lot of the people that um like disney people included got really into this modernist graphical style of animating uh a lot of them were pushing back against Disney Disney was like very prescriptive realist and like I want like European fairy tales like people need to look like the illusion of life it needs to be like a 3D feeling and detailed and all of this stuff and uh people you know as the the whole kind of cultural I don't know milieu whatever is yeah. turning towards this more you know we have Matisse and we have Mira and like Picasso and all these people are working in this different way and that is associated with contemporary thinking and modernism and people want to be able to play with that. And like Disney, I guess, was not really interested in that mm. initially. And then a lot of people left his studio when, um, what year was it? There was the big strike in uh, 1941, okay. Disney Studios. Um, big strike, the classic reasons that people go on strike. A lot of people that ended up leaving Disney at that time were people who wanted to to do to work in in stuff like that in ways like that and Disney wasn't interested. And this was just a little tidbit that I read that I thought was interesting that in the late 30s I think it was Frank Lloyd Wright who was an architect. Mm-hmm. I don't know why he was there but he went to the Disney Studios and he brought a little Russian cartoon a short film that you can find in very poor quality on YouTube called The Tale of Zar Zar. Wow. The Tale of Zar Durandai. I'm not sure if that's 100% correct but Sounds it's pretty something good. like that. Yeah. Uh, and it is very graphical style like uh, one of you know 
characters are animating and they don't have solid outlines, it'll be more just like white character and like some black clothes mm. on. And that's just the gestalt is kind of like forming these characters. And I guess Walt Disney was just like, uh, like I feel nothing. And there were a couple people at Disney who were like, this is so cool. Like, this is so interesting. And Disney was just like not, just did not want to go for it. I don't know exactly what made this more viable in the later years because this is a Disney production yeah. that we're talking about. So I don't know if, I suspect some of it is because a lot of this also was, it's TV animation. Mm -hmm. So everything is cheap. Budgets right. are extremely low, just ragged. Uh, and they just want to make things as economical as possible. So people were having fun with it and making really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And then that also just becomes a viable style in and of itself. So maybe at this point it was just steeped enough and, you know, people are just expecting to see this. And Ward Kimball probably had enough flex to be like, I want to do this. Like, right. Because he's one of the nine old men, right? He'd been around since, yeah, 37 or 34 to 73. So he's there for like everything essential. Like Jiminy Cricket is like his character and yeah. stuff. So he's he's like a fundamental guy. Um, so I, I imagine, you know, it's like it seems like Disney himself is has moved on from like thinking about the fine arts and like narrative into building like immersive experiences. And then he's like, well, now I can use my cartoon storytelling to like basically promote my Disneyland, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you get these really interesting things, but probably at the time, if you were a savvy adult, you're like, this is basically a kind of a commercial. Yeah. And it's also Disney associating himself with what the politics of the time, like post-war, he wants to be associated with whatever the next positive thing is, which is like getting people, getting a man on the moon and like thinking about space travel seems to be like, how do we exit the mindset of wartime? And Disney's like, oh, well, I can be part of that. In fact, Fantasy. <laughs> right, yeah, just complete, <laughs> like, just move off the planet. Um, so if this, this short is part of a three-part series. The other ones are quite boring. In fact, a lot of this one is kind of boring, <laughs> except for the animated parts. But uh, there was a consultant. So th this kind of gets into that category of, like, Walt Disney was a fill-in Nazi Google. Like, you know, people love to be like, oh, Disney, like, had this association with the Nazis. And he was like, all these things. It's like, well, I think if any, any person of power connected with the media is going to, like, dabble in politics to some degree. So I don't know where all this connection stuff comes from. But I think part of the story is at the end of the war, a, a bunch of, like, German rocket scientists, you know, came to America. And one of them is this guy, uh, Werner von Braun. And he, he's the guy who's in the other shorts or uh, the other specials oh, as like the rocket scientist. I didn't know that. And so he's like an ex-German, like not who knows like what sort of shit he was involved in that we've never heard of. But I feel like this is part of that, like, oh, Disney kind of like, you know, the post-war, I don't know. I don't know anything about it, really. Do you want to talk about German Nazi stuff and Walt Disney? Uh, well, <laughs> and this is definitely a tangent, but I think well, since Walt Disney is so heavily involved in this and, like, literally shows up at the beginning to be like, hi, yeah. I'm Walt Disney and you can trust me, like, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and he's just, it's relevant. Uh, like, I have such mixed feelings <laughs> because... He is very charming in this, and I can totally see why people watch this, especially if you saw this as a kid and just had this, like, mm -hmm. glowing association with him. Uh, I grew up watching Disney stuff, but I didn't have a real conception of, like, who this person was. But I'm pretty sure he was just completely insane. Like, I don't think we would have gotten along. And 
I haven't investigated super intensely, but like I've, I've read a lot about Disney in general and with a very open mind because I'm not expecting to see a lot of like, he was a great guy that like right. was great. Like, I'm you know, that's not the stuff that I'm really looking out for. And I can't quite, I haven't found where like the, the Nazis sympathizing and the anti-Semitism accusations come from. And I'm, so I'm not going to say they're wrong. I just haven't, I don't know what concrete things made people think that. Mm-hmm. And the other stuff I like, oh yeah, like he hated communists. And was, like, obsessed with that and, like, was totally insane and also treated his employees really bad. And yeah. All of this other stuff that, like, I've read concrete documentation of and, like, I just – I feel comfortable being, like, yep. Uh, so I know that he, like, in the later years just went totally rabid and was, like, we got to hunt out all the communists. and right. I And to some degree, I think you can trace that back to the strike because a lot of the people that uh, were backing the strike at Disney were left-leaning, mm-hmm. like – reds in this cartoon modern book there's a lot of sort of offhand mentions of people working at like the upa studios and stuff who are basically reds like that self-described mm-hmm. and like i don't want to work on this oil like petroleum video because like i don't believe in that stuff whatever right and i was like this is actually really cool to read about i kind of like this and interestingly a lot of these projects were funded by the government too right. at post-war i'm mm-hmm. like this all makes so much sense i would never really thought about before uh, a lot of them are making like propaganda but you know, or like videos that they believe in, videos mm-hmm. that maybe they don't believe in. Basically, just he was like, I think he just felt so betrayed by that and had a very intensely capitalist, I don't know, like absorbing mindset that I find very unappealing at best. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I know he was like talking to the government about people like that and like narking on people and stuff. Right. Like he was just completely, ins- I wouldn't put anything past him, basically. Right. <laughs> so I really don't know. I do think he became very unhinged as he got older, uh, but I don't know how hinged he was mm-hmm. to begin with. <laughs> so in the in the way we can look at um, like Mars and Beyond as it's inspirational to us, if you look at it from the angle of it's kind of an educational cartoon in a way that's supposed to kind of enlighten you to the history of like science fiction literature and speculation and philosophy and like where is science taking us? But in another way, the reason it's so good and effective is because Disney has a long history of, like, propaganda cartooning from, like, decades before. And, in fact, this piece, in in kind of a cool way, influences what NASA becomes. Because I think – who is it? Eisenhower? Who the hell is the president? It's probably not Eisenhower. I don't know. Definitely Eisenhower. Is it? (laughs) Showed this – to, I don't know, his like military board or it, it, it eventually kind of helps solidify what a rocket project and like a program for this can be become. Because if you watch this special, you can, you can see yourself getting caught up in the magic of it. You're, it's totally. like, it seems like the coolest type of job to have. It's, and why wouldn't anybody be on board? Because it's kind of literary. It's kind of military in a way. Uh, like it covers everything. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it seems to be said that this video specifically, um, this third piece, was a big part of like, we need to go to space. Like Disney is telling you the story as to why, which is interesting. Oh, it's super interesting. And I'm um, glad you're talking about this because I, I want to segue sort of into something very bizarre. And I don't know if you're familiar with it. And I found out about it today. So I don't know anything about it really. But Ward Kimball did one independent animated short outside of Disney. And it was an anti, like Lyndon B. Johnson, yeah. like anti Vietnam War video that is just not safe for work. Nope. <laughs> I'll say that. 
And I have no idea what to make of it, honestly. But it's very critical. Yeah. Um, in a way, I guess that I'm almost surprised just considering the politics of people like high up at Disney's studio. Right. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay. What is going on with you guys? Because it seems very critical about American culture. Mm -hmm. And I won't, I literally just saw it for the first time today. It is also on YouTube. Again, not safe for work. For real, it's not. Tread carefully. But there's a lot of flashes of big American culture, like icons, actors and stuff, and mm -hmm. like Coca-Cola and stuff like that, like happening. And it's intercut with these like rapid cuts of uh, explosions, basically. Uh, I, it's very short. Yeah. Go check it out if you're of age. <laughs> very confusing. So, I, yeah, I really don't know what to make of that because Walt Disney is American, is big American culture. Yeah. So I'm like, what is going on here? Like, I'd love to know more, but there is, in my today of research, I did not find that. Uh, so I also uh, on the on the tangent of like what did Ward Kimball do on the side? Um, I found a cool. Let's see if I can pull it oh, up. That's called Escalation, by the way, <laughs> is the name of the short. If you're frantically googling to find this racy video that I'm describing, where is it? Oh, here it is. Okay, so in 1985, just for a, a lark, Ward Kimball did this um, model sheet of Mickey Mouse's, and they're all. <laughs> They're all like bastardized versions of Mickey Mouse. So you want to read like a couple of like the names of some of them. Yeah, there's two realistic, which is very hairy, big feet, real feet, no shoes. Too innovative, which I would say is very mid-century modern, dare I say. Too plagiaristic I'm enjoying, which is just very clearly Bugs Bunny, but Mickey Mouse. Too controversial. Is that a Betty Boop? I think so. And then there's um, just straight up E.T., too extraterrestrial. Yeah, the nature of 1985 Amblin just kind of overshadowing everything. But I feel like, yeah, I mean, I, like imagine yourself as like a creative individual just being like tied up in the Disney economy for so long. You're naturally going to like lash out a little bit with like some like weird political thing that seems totally off brand or like a funny model sheet of like, I don't believe this is what this mouse has become. Because even by 63, you get... Uh, Roy Lichtenstein, is it Roy Lich Lichtenstein, who's like the pop, the pop artist who does guy, the yeah. zooms in of the panels. There's there's Mickey Mouse, you know, versions mm -hmm. of that. Yeah. It's like the the solidifying of, of like Mickey as the American icon is like it's coming together right around now. Is it like I don't know what era Mickey is in at, in his shorts. Like, is he all American apple pie Mickey by 1957, or is he like, still is he kind of around? Because there was a point where we they come just back didn't to it. really do right. it anymore. Yeah. But by the 60s, it for sure is. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I don't but know. Is I, it like I, House of Mouse, like Mickey Mouse, or the Mickey Mouse Club? Yeah, that's all going. I think that was something that my mom was born in 63, and she remembers that from her childhood. So it's more maybe the 70s um, or like late 60s. No, yeah, guessing? it goes pretty far back, the Mickey Mouse Club. Never seen sure. it, so I can't. Oh, yeah. I'm just aware that Mickey Mouse is involved in right. some way. Yeah, the like tentacles of Disney are just like stretching out at this point. Um, and it's very interesting. And I hadn't really, I mean, I guess secretly I should have known like so much of my brain is like warped by all this stuff. Whereas in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, no, it's because I watched Little Mermaid a million times. I'm like, no, actually, it's because of all this wonderful world of Disney content, I think, because it's got such an agenda attached to it, especially yeah. with the horse one. This breeds devotion. I think it's just like, of course, Disney had mm -hmm. to make an appearance in each episode because it's just about him. Yeah. 
for better or for worse, it just is. It's his journey we're watching, basically. Yeah. Right? His fascinations. That's I have such mixed feelings for so many reasons. I think I've said that on every single episode of this podcast, by the way. Would you say mixed, mixed feelings? Mixed feelings, yeah. Just the nature of the beast, I guess. Nothing, it can just be that good. That was the working title originally, <laughs> Kaylin's Mixed Feelings. Mixed but feelings. I'm like, it's feels, it should be cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> Why isn't Ira in Mark's feelings? Oh. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> but, like, he's... Okay, gathering myself. Because okay. it's just something that I have had to reckon with ever since I was aware of, like, bad things, basically. That's mm. something that I just loved so much as a kid, it, like, has so much negativity built into it and associated with it. And it's just bizarre, especially because Disney, ha- like, has aggressively cultivated its own image for so long. Mm-hmm. And Walt Disney, especially when he was around. Like, I'm this, like warm guy that's like going to talk to you about what's cool and the future and art mm-hmm. i'm like i'm an arbiter of all of these things and like of course people in that age had this association with disney as this very positive thing because it lit- it's literally just propaganda videos right and I, I say that not being like don't ever watch these whatever like i think there's value to watching these it's just be aware of the truth of that it's an earnest time too right like morality is like it's like a very kind of religion not at the night Religion, again, I keep talking about every episode. But I Praise mean, him. But it is like, it's such an earnest era, yeah. well, right? Like, America, like, yeah. we're doing good and we're doing good stuff. And we're like, uh, you know, rah, rah. And a lot, underneath that, there's a lot of ugly stuff. Mm-hmm. And just in the world in general, too. But that, yeah. Like, there's something about the end of this show where they start talking about, like, the actual journey to Mars right. that it doesn't feel particularly American to me, but it's just like... The astronaut will do this. Like, how will he handle the blah, blah, blah? And there's, like, pictures of, like, the badass-looking astronaut in his yeah. little ship or whatever. And that that feels like an ad for, like, you should join the military or something. Right, You know? Yeah. Like, it just, it's weird how slick and, like, clean it. Like, the astronaut is a cool guy. <laughs> like, right. America is cool. Like, that is kind of the energy that you get at the end of this. Right. It tries to put you in in the scene. In a way, the earlier shorts are just sort of like weird experiments that kind of like trigger your mind in strange ways. Whereas you're right, that cl- well, I guess we'll get there when we get there. But it makes me think of like the way the rides kind of put you in a character in this world for a minute. You're yeah. like, I'm Mr. Toad on the wild ride or like I'm going through the haunted house or whatever. I am Mr. Toad on the wild ride. It is, it is kind of like uh, it's propaganda also. Mr. Toad's wild ride is basically like uh, drunk driving propaganda. It's like, <laughs> look how fun this could be. This could be you. You heard it here first, folks. Hard pivot in this episode. Okay. Uh, and also, you know, it again on the... You know, all these like, oh, now they're talking about politics a little bit and like the way Disney is doing this. It's like every, every, every artist of power like was in this place. Like 1957, Dr. Seuss puts out Cat in the Hat. If you look back on Dr. Seuss, he was a political cartoonist like for years. Have you ever seen old uh, political? Yeah. Yeah. It's like every, all these people are connected to like Eric Carle did like commercial art. Some of it's pretty like weird. You know, it's not like he was a children's book author. None of these people started out making kids content. They're all the all the money that pays for that shit comes from like their associations with, I don't know, the government or some some sort of thing. Okay, here's a, a funny thing I found. Can I talk about Imagineering for a minute? You may. Okay, because this this whole project Thank is kind asking. of about the development of Disneyland, right? 
So the term Imagineering, familiar? Yes. Like, what does it mean well, to it, you? It means the coolest job. Right. That's what it always like, meant, Like, literally right? the coolest job you could have. And did you always feel like Disney owned that word? Yes. Okay. I'm pretty sure they had uh, shorts on the Disney Channel about Imagineering. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm making this up, but I think they did. And it was very much like Disney's Imagineers, like Disney's thing that they do it's a disney thing you're not gonna work at six flags and have an imagineering job you know like you can only do that in florida at disney world or whatever that was kind of one in the same okay back to wartime so um (laughs) imagineering is a term that existed a while before that and like disney kind of took it over so wow i learned this in this newsletter i read called uh the tdm newsletter sounds boring it is. Every every issue is about something. You want to know the history of the CD-ROM? That's one issue. This issue was about Imagineering. So it's uh, Imagineering started as a wartime slogan for the aluminum industry to promote itself of in course. the exact same way Disney talks about Imagineering for like creating an immersive experience. Except it's like the idea is like aluminum. Here's what it's going to do for us. Like imagine this. Like imagine what our people are doing. We're crafting. We're engineering. Like the the art of planning today, the things you will want tomorrow is the phrase this company called Alcoa. This aluminum company called Alcoa during World War II coined this phrase and just had like the word imaginary and big on their, their branding. So I thought that was really interesting for Disney to... Like, I don't know where he, if he came across that term in this or if it was just a little more zeitgeisty in yeah. general, because probably other companies were doing the same thing with whatever, like steel, Imagineering steel or whatever, right? Like any, every metal, any every sort element. of manufacturing. <laughs> um, so I just thought was, that was an interesting door opening. I love to see through the cracks of things Disney seems to own. Because mm-hmm. to me, imaginary means exactly as yeah, you described they, it. I it's like the coolest job that Disney else. invented. Yeah, right? I, so I, I thought that was, again, another um, kind of depressing way the, uh, it ties <laughs> to, to industry and politics and war. Did-dum-bump. What a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, friends. <laughs> Disney stole everything. All right, where do we go from here? Can I quickly, though, let's just segue with this quote that's going to sound like nothing, but that I specifically wrote down because I liked it and I want to say it uh, because it has more to do with the the change from the Disney style of the round, like the, the circles and the, line, and the construction lines and everything is like soft shapes and pear shapes and blah, 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 to the, the mid-century modern style, which is much more angular a lot of the time. And clean and almost like a little, little more digital looking, uh, considering. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Bill Hertz, who was a director, I think he was one of the founders of UPA, if I'm not mistaken. But there was just a quote where he was talking about these design sensibilities that's in Cartoon Modern. And he says, excessive curvilinearity Ooh. could be said to be vulgar because it's the epitome of the crumpled, the doughy, the schlumpen, the inelegant. And I just find this an absolutely devastating academic way to be like, that circle shit is lame. Like, you could say that it's vulgar. I'm like, really? Yeah. This is just like, but you said it so elegantly that you even threw a German word in there. I have to believe it. Yeah. So Bill Hertz, he, maybe he's right. <laughs> That's for you to decide. Boy, like I get, yeah. This this is also the era of um, 
like some of the best fonts in like typography and graphic art in general, like seems to have been solidified like in this time. So it doesn't, it's not surprising that people would talk that way. Yeah. Um, in this industry where it's like, it's almost like a belief system. Oh, yeah. And like I think it was. forms and shapes were appropriate. I think every art and design era is probably like that, too, because mm. the turnover is always reactionary. And there's right. always people being like, you guys did things like clearly invisibly. Like, I'm going to do it in this expressionist way that's new that like yeah. I invented or whatever. Everything's a pushback from the old thing. And that's what this is. I was like, everything looks so like doughy when you do it that Disney way from 20 years ago or whatever. Right. We're going to do it a completely different, simpler way. And so everything just goes through these cycles. Mm-hmm. And probably there's increasingly funnier quotes back through history as each generation gets tired of the previous generation's predominant design style. Right. Uh, we just we lost them all in the dark ages. Yeah. Yeah. We're so like... Squash and stretch is like not cool. At yeah, this time, like, right. Eh, try some rigidity. Make it a square. <laughs> Just make it that rectangle slide across the screen. Yeah, like there should be no dimensionality. Everything is flat. Yeah. Um, what year did that book Flatland come out? You know that book? No, I don't think so. A, no- a novella by Edwin. A romance of many dimensions. Yeah. Uh, this might be eighteen eighty four. Okay, this is a tangent too far. Never mind. <laughs> Almost a completely different mid-century. <laughs> okay, we're not going to talk about Flatland, but um, there's been animated Bonus versions episode. of it. And it, it looks like Disney cartoon stuff of this time where it's like, ah, the triangle meets the triangle and they fall in love. Here's what it looks like Oh, when you're they fall thinking in love. of um, the dot and the line animation. Yeah, I feel like it's based on Flatland. It probably though. is. Yeah. Okay, anyway, uh, this episode is full of tiny threads that if you want to pull on them and undo the whole sweater of history of art and culture. You like, can. Go, go ahead. That's not for us to do, though. We're not getting paid enough. Uh, okay. Are we getting paid? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm doing like a, a live feed of this, and I have oh, like 7,000 subscribers. I say so much dumb stuff. No, it's just my side. That makes sense. Um, they fill it in in the chat. Okay. Some more fa- Do you want some more facts? Uh, yeah, if you're okay. willing to unleash them. So where does the the idea for this whole project come from? That's a question. Um, space. Uh, yeah, I guess in a way <laughs> it does. So in the early 50s, Collier Magazine invited Werner von Braun to publish uh, like an essay or like a series of essays about his understanding of rocket science. And this becomes like a definitive article. Like it's a very popular piece for, you know, fans of engineering, like the general public, but also the scientific community. That's why he's the scientist that gets picked to help develop the the copy, like the narration for this whole series, which the special we like the most is basically more reflecting on the history of like science fiction and philosophy. So that's why it's cool. But the other ones are a little more scientific. So that's kind of like, where this all started coming from, this this one uh, German scientist. Mixed feelings, as I said before. Okay, and it's and it's actually Ward Kimball who reached out to this guy. So I guess Ward Kimball was a little more in charge than I imagined. Because I, I remember seeing that his name was attached to this, but I always just was like, this is Disney's thing. Because he talks yeah. at the beginning that I felt like it was this whole story. But I guess it was more of a Ward Kimball well, 
thing, yeah, right? Yeah, something that I thought was interesting. Uh, I think I mentioned this before that I hadn't seen the other two and that only one of these three space uh, videos, one other of them is on Disney+. Plus. And I threw it on and like Ward Kimball is not only in it on camera, but he's also narrating the whole thing, which mm. I found very surprising. Mm. I just wasn't expecting that. So you do get the impression that's like, I don't know why they chose to have him not do i mean paul freeze is way better at it admittedly right. but like i don't know why he wasn't narrating this one instead and i will say very brief quote not from kimball himself but from the book again mm-hmm. uh that kimball considered working on the space series the creative high point of his whole career which i find very interesting so he must have had a lot of free reign and a lot of control over it to yeah. feel like he could just let loose and i do think that shows because the animation styles even in this are so different there mm-hmm. are like really cartoony silly bits with like weird creatures and they're just very goofy and silly and then later there's some sequences of what alien life might be on mars that are actually really creepy to me and they are really evocative of these just weird like 60s and 70s animations i've seen yep that are just cre- like they almost look like there's like the pink floyd animation of the flower and it's like you know, you know yeah yeah totally it reminds yep. me of that yeah uh, so he's just – he's all over the place in this. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I feel like that um, – feeling like this is the peak because it does – again, Eisenhower it – w- it was Eisenhower. Like <laughs> nice. I guess he – I don't know if Ward Kimball got to talk to him. But like Eisenhower takes a video, shows it at the Pentagon, and then actually calls Disney to be like, well, Eisenhower here. <laughs> I want to congratulate you on uh, a great uh, – uh, uh, I don't know – a philanthropical um, gesture towards the future of humanity. But I don't know if Ward Kimball got to be on the line. Probably not. But maybe it came down to him. Like, it'd be pretty cool, I guess, if the president was like, hey, Caitlin, love that Atlantic piece you did. It really depends (laughs) on the president. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) What if Eisenhower himself gave you a ring? I bet you're like, well, you're still, is Eisenhower still alive? (laughs) I I guess I would be surprised. Uh, He probably smoked himself to death like everybody else from the 50s. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, R.I.P. Eisenhower. Should we talk a little bit more about uh, Ward Kimball specifically? We may. Okay. Or do we want to talk about Paul Freeze? We could save him for when we get I don't into... know much about Paul Freeze. Other than we love him. He's just an amazing boy. Like, honestly, it does... I like the first time I watched this, I was like, is that Orson Welles? There's no way. And it's not. It's in the it's same Paul category. Price, but yes, though. you're it's right. Orson yeah, Welles totally. vibes. Radio voice. Guy. Yeah, which like Orson Welles absolutely deserves all the credit he's ever gotten for his voice. It's unbelievably good. Like it's just real nice. A nice voice. Paul Freeze. Right up there. Right. Sounds very similar, if not exactly the same. Right. And if you're not, if you don't know who Paul Freeze is, he's the Haunted Mansion. I didn't know that. Oh, you didn't? Oh, okay. I knew he had but now you done know why Disney you, stuff. Yes, that's part yeah. of why you love it even more. And it, it, like, it's another voice that I'm like, that's iconic. Like yeah. that soothing voice that I could like fall asleep to every night mm-hmm. for whatever reason. It just has that quality. That's Paul Freeze. Yeah. Love that guy. I hope he's well. Oh, I hope. I don't know. Cigarettes probably. He might be dead. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So Ward Kibble, one of our favorites. Um, one of the nine old men. He had a band. With so this, it, I love uh, just the cool little side projects of some of these people that seem like probably too busy to have side projects. It, it makes me feel bad. I'm like, well, you know, I've been meaning to start piano lessons again for a long time. Right. And it's like, you're in a trombone, Kimball, but you're a jazz trombonist. Like, how dare you? Right. So Ward Kimball has he's a trombone player. As a side project, he starts a Dixieland jazz band called the Firehouse Five Plus Two. 
And uh, here's one of their album covers. Uh, This album is called Crash is a Party, if you want to just describe this album cover to the people. I do. Uh, It's indescribable. It's actually, it's a photo of a gaggle of musicians, presumably the titular Firehouse Five, um, Kool-Aid manning their way, I would say, through (laughs) the, like... Uh, two like bougie people's wall, like some kind of. He's basically crashing like a rich person, like a couple's home date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're in like a chaise, and there's a a chandelier over them, um, and they're just tromboning. The um, the rich couple is not. No, they the, would. Uh, <laughs> they're not having it. Mm-mm. No, the the firehouse five. Um, <laughs> they are tromboning it at all. So that's cool. Are these all Disney people? No, so but it's, they're animators. It's Ward Kimball. Frank I, Thomas is in it. Right. Another Frank, one of the nine old men. Yeah. And then there's another director. Um, and then there's a couple people that come in later that have like notable roles in Hollywood and like Disney. But the names are weren't recognizable to me. But it's part of its musicians and then part of its like animators and stuff. Yeah. That kicks ass. But I love the way it's kind of like this Dixieland band is kind of being punk. They're like crashing through the wall of like <laughs> just these, these stoogy like well-to-do it people. absolutely is punky but like in a completely <laughs> but with trombones as an animator would do frankly like how animators <laughs> right. like have a certain like amount of so swag but it's not round. actually cool the edges like, are completely rounded yeah. off yeah <laughs> <laughs> right if you're a cool animator no it's you're a not very narrow context <laughs> no you're <Yeah>. not <laughs> um okay so ward kimball you know heading this project did a bunch of other cool things. So he he's the main guy behind the three Caballeros shorts. Pretty iconic Disney. Haven't stuff. seen them. But it's like the three amigos. Ta- yeah, type I've seen of thing a lot of Donald the Duck. art, and I've yeah. read a lot about it, which feels very nerdy. But right. I haven't seen it. What about um, when you're in Epcot and you go into the Mexico Pavilion? The little boat ride is the three uh, Caballeros. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Okay. I'll take that boat ride sometime. With You can have a little uh, margarita and ride a little boat. Can you have a margarita? You can't take it on the boat, but you can oh. stand in line with it. Well, mm, yeah. It's like, can they stop me? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Very kind of like Tex Avery, Chuck Jones kind of-ish guy as well. Or UPA-ish, I guess, as you were kind of like pointing out. Very UPA-ish. UPA-ish. I will throw this out as mm-hmm. maybe a, I don't know, personal fave, because I don't know that I like sit there and be like, yeah, Ward Kimball did this. But um, he did a lot of the characters in Disney's animated Alice in Wonderland, which I just like love for some reason. Yeah. A lot of people don't, well, I don't know if a lot of people don't like it. It's not that popular. It's not like that spoken about these days of a I feel movie. like the Tim Burton ones kind of ruined the whole thing uh, in a yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely but, true. But, but even, before them, I feel like it had a rep. No? And as a kid, I didn't like it. Because oh, okay. I think it was like a little too freaky for me. The, it's very loud and aggressive. Yes, yeah. Like and the like, Mad Hatter is vi- like, there's a lot of angry characters. Yeah, it's just right? discordant too. Like that's yeah. the whole deal, really. And as a kid, maybe I'm like, what is happening? Like there's no plot. And as an adult, hmm. I'm kind of like, yeah, I could just dip in and out of this. No big deal. And like, I became obsessed in my later years with Mary Blair, who's the art director mm-hmm. of that movie. 
and it shows and it's great. Mm-hmm. And the colors are so great. I um I cannot see many, many different kinds of flowers without evoking I know, me the neither. flower scene. Like, yeah, like the like tigery, like the lion flowers yeah, and stuff. That yeah, that gets stuck in my head in our yard. Totally. Like this summer it kept happening because or this spring, I guess. We had like wildflowers popping up and I'm like, oh shit, like it's these flowers from Alsamara. Yeah. And I just like that lives in my head rent free mm-hmm. forever and the rocking horse fly, all that stuff. There's just something about it that I just love and I've seen that movie a million times probably because it's it's one movie where I'll just throw it on if I'm working and I want to yeah. cultivate that mood it's kind of like you're saying it's kind of a bunch of great scenes yeah and it's just it's but just like a flavor kind of bumped weird, up against each other and like aesthetically it's just it's that era the mm. colors like are impeccable and the designs are so weird like somebody was having a lot of fun with yeah. a lot of this stuff and he did a bunch of the he did like the Tweedledee and Tweedledum characters but a handful of others I think too in that movie and that to me is just like okay like your design sensibility and like the stuff you were doing it just aligns perfectly with something that i really really like for whatever reason yeah so you're gonna be up there for me that's it i didn't know that he was such a part of that and that makes sense because when you're watching mars and beyond basically like the whole scene of um speculating on like what alien life is on each planet where we get this like quick little glimpse of like some weird characters usually they're paired off and they just kind of run a quick gag basically but the body language is very like what would become alice in wonderland things are just sort of sliding and forming and doing little like gestures like with their like a big globby thing with like a little appendage on the end like high contrast Mm -hmm. Big, a like, weird, bold-shaped or, like, stuff. Like, long, skinny legs. Like, there's a lot of that. And uh, I think there's, like, the when she gets lost in the Tulgy Wood in Alice in mm. Wonderland, and there's all the different animals. And there's, like, ducks that are, like, horns. Like, and if yeah. you step on them, they, like, honk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just weird, like, weird stuff like that. You can tell it all came from this dude. And, like, it just... He was doing the same thing when he was, he was like, what, an alien? I don't know. I guess it's like a horse and it's got eight legs and it opens its mouth and there's another head in there that's just the same horse head but small. Like, he's just making it up yeah. and, like, having fun with it. And this, Alice in Wonderland, it's like, oh, they're, it's like birds, but they're, they're a shovel. Like, okay, they're right. birds, but it's an umbrella. A lot of birds in that one. But it totally makes sense. I guess that's an un, uh, unappreciated aspect of, like, the these animators, they're so... Amazing animators, amazing visual sense, obviously, but they're like masters of adaptation. So like Alice in Wonderland is a book. So like, how do you take all these characters and turn them like, what do they look like? What is the Jab? I mean, we don't see the Jabberwocky in that, but like uh, the walrus and the carpenter, like what does it look like when these characters like have their little fable moment? And the same thing with this, because, and I I had read this before. I I don't know if I have any notes that, leftover from some other thing I had been doing when I was thinking about this movie. But all the scenes where they're speculating on, like, life on this planet and so forth, they they pointed out a couple times, they're like, oh, H.G. Uh, Wells says this, or, you know, whatever, like Jules Verne, so-and-so. They're all pulled from old, sometimes 18th century, mostly 19th century science fiction, or, like, scientific texts. So, like, you could almost pull those quotes, those descriptions of, like, the horse within the horse or, like, the, like, little frozen pair of figures. Um, I, I realized later that that's not – they're not making that up. Like, these are all, like, little bits taken yeah. from literature, which is, like, kind of cool. Because that's one of those little I, – I guess I – later Disney just a – lo, a lot of Disney is uh, taking a story and kind of claiming owner, ownership in a way. But it's – 
it didn't seem like it was always completely like that. Like in this short, they're not as much pain. They are seem they're they're noting names. Like you get the names of some philosophers. They do try to put into context certain things. So it's not like they're stealing all this content. But this seems to be that perfect like middle ground of it's a Disney thing. It's creative in a Disney way. It's safe in a Disney way. But it's also educational in that like you could take this research and like go on your own journey with it, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, it's almost like basically this probably is really what it is. It's like planting the seeds. Like this is to get you excited and right. you into it. And like we're going to have some of this stuff at Disneyland. So you should come check it out. Yeah, and it's like, so barely getting at that. Lands, right, yeah. You know, yeah. And it's like they're not, they don't have to be like, by the way, mm-hmm. go to Disneyland. Which again, I don't think was extant at this point. But no. Like yeah, that, this is all hype building, yeah. right? And it's like, it's like Frontierland. So you can't buy a ticket. to love Frontier stuff. Yeah. Like Tomorrowland for, you know, there's like something for everybody. Mm-hmm. He's pretty good at doing that for somebody that we distill down to like just princess stuff a lot of the time. Yeah. The Martians he sees are exactly 10 feet tall. Their favorite culture is music, which they inhale in great quantities through their noses. <laughs> How do you feel about Graco? Oh, I think it's Garco, right? Of course it's fucking The robot? Um, I mean, I'm going to say it wrong. Walt Disney's Graco. I, I like Graco better. Even fictional names I can't say right. <laughs> Greco. Um, I found him really funny and also kind of like unusually bad for a Disney thing. Yeah. I don't know if I'm like, I'm just like, really? Come on, Walt. It's not Come very on. right, and like mid, we're talking mid-century design, and it's just like cool aesthetic. Graco, Graco? No, Graco. <laughs> it's Graco. No, it's not. It's, what? <laughs> I, it says on him. Let me just skip. Greco. Greco. No, I can see the word. I'm oh, just Garco. Garco. Hello, Garrett. Walt. Oh, because he's from Garrett Co. or something. Garrett. Oh, I wonder Company. what that is. Yeah, I don't know. So That's if, a fun thing about, we'll just say, like, to watch something old being like, hmm, the future, and be like, wow, this is from the past extremely and intensely, right, and, like, whole, that's not around anymore. Like, that, it's just kind of fun. Yeah, t- Tomorrowland, and this is sort of, like, the cool, this is the comforting thing, but also the tragic thing is, like, as Walt Disney, like, you know, gets older and then disappears from this company, it becomes completely solidified into what people think his vision was, and it, but his vision was always growing, but now it just has to stop. Yeah. So, like, Tomorrowland isn't <laughs> More like speculative. It's just, Yeah, it's like yesterday's Tomorrowland. <laughs> it is. It's like you go there and Space Mountain is like, it's fun. It's frozen I, in But time. it is the jankiest roller coaster, <laughs> and it goes, like, five miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Like, it's nothing. And it's just – but, like, back then it was probably really cool. And Graco probably worked on that ride. Or he is part oh, of it. Oh, he's one he of the Imagineers. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's probably like um in Star Wars land somewhere, like as just a yeah. like a background animatronic. I wonder so if you don't know what the hell we're talking about, basically <laughs> the the Mars and Beyond short opens with Disney not at his iconic desk pulling like a book off the shelf or anything, or like pointing or gesturing at like a sculpture of uh Yeah, that's the, the past hour. Yeah, the, the seven dwarves. He's standing in a an empty room with a, a robot who's like Terminator sized. Yeah, yeah, larger with a booming than voice. Disney, who's like, yeah, well, nah. I don't remember what he says, but he's he's certainly there. Yeah. So if this was a, a newer version of this, would it be like a Boston Dynamics dog? Oh my a, god, Ugh. that was a bit I wrote. I actually wrote that sentence down. 
I mean, probably. It probably would be like, I don't know, like the RoboCop thing. Yeah. Like, oh, God. You know? Like the Ed. <laughs> wait, the RoboCop or the, the villain? The big. The, the big, mech you have looking one? 10 yeah. seconds yeah. to comply. Or yeah, <laughs> that God. guy. The stop like, yeah, it would be guy. like much more clear that it was very fashy. Yeah. I don't know. Not great. Definitely a Boston Dynamics thing. Yeah. Neil showed me recently the video where there were like two Boston Dynamics robots dancing and then the dog comes and he's dancing no. and I was like, what the fuck? Like, it wasn't great. I didn't like it. No, it's it's very like real world <laughs> Valley of the Uncanny. It's interesting that um, Disney must have known to not dive into stop motion because he just knew he's like, this is cursed some way. <laughs> it's beautiful in one way, but also like Oh, I demonic. wonder. I wonder if he even liked it at all. It's, I don't know. He must not have because they never so... do it. It's all animatronic or yeah. um, cell art, Yeah, right? I think like stop motion, it was too much like you know that it's not real. And, like, that yeah. is kind of the charm of it. But right. for him, he was obsessed about making things feel real. Yeah, and like that fluid. just wasn't. Yeah. Uh, God, he was really intense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what so, a guy. So we open with Walt talking to Grocco. And then we cut right into what is probably, you know, I, I don't know, for me, a, a, a fundamental part of, like, my cartoon education is this little short about 10 minutes of basically what like the history of human like thought yeah i guess like <laughs> relating to the stars because it's like yeah. in caveman times like oh people were doing caveman stuff and then you know when we started to do agriculture we were out in the fields hanging out it's nighttime mm-hmm. looking at the stars like that's really the energy that it's bringing and it's just a guy like doing his field work yeah. and like looking at the stars and that whole sequence this whole section which i said earlier but i'll just reiterate again it's utterly bizarre to me that i didn't see this when i was younger or at least i have no memory of seeing it mm-hmm. because it's like the exact same work that i did for so long yeah. in my career and also like the exact same energy that i tried to bring to it i don't think i did as well as this does honestly because of no budget or support and very short timeline but it's like he just tries to make it funny there's a part where uh, he's talking about this guy, like when man noticed that uh, stars like went over to the horizon, like fell off the horizon or whatever. The guy is like looking up at the stars and just walks off a cliff. Right. But then the camera fall like falls down and follows him, and he's like in the ocean, but he's still like the stars are going, and it's still he's still like looking. And it's just like this is funny because it really is not educational what you're seeing right now. Right. It's just random bullshit that's funny. But it makes it more fun, and you're still listening to the audio, which is telling you the actual history in a little bit more of a dry way, but Mm -hmm. it just makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. Right. The little, like, transitional – yeah, it dips in and out of being kind of enlightening in funny little ways. Like, there's certain moments that really catch my – captured my imagination, I would say. There's a moment where – they they say the ancient Egyptians love to draw, and then it shows like kind of that one of those icon. It's it's the Egyptian myth of the universe where it's like a figure lying flat, and then a figure arched over the top that re- that kind of encloses the sky. So like the universe is enclosed between these two bodies. I remember seeing that in like a history or textbook, but the but then they basically trace it and use it here. And the way they say that Egyptians love to draw just. It was like, oh, yeah, people probably always drew. I remember, like, being young and being like, oh, history isn't about boring stuff. It's about 
other art like there were artists yeah like it just kind of awoke my mind to that so um maybe even more so i mean egyptians were just like everything you can just cut carve on everything yeah they just fucking drew wherever they want write a book wherever you want right yeah okay (laughs) must have been a simpler time yeah it it's it it's just it's so fun to just watch them in this little quick couple minutes just sort of like cover so much of history i think that's also, some of the magic is like it compresses so much time into yeah. like this this quick little thing. Um, it's one of those things where this is where animation gets into trouble too. Right. We've talked about this many times, uh, like the cultural issues and stuff, because it relies on these stereotypes and the knowledge that they have at the time, and also mm-hmm. like people's biases and prejudices, etc. It can be bad because they are just like Egyptians. Here's you know, some Egyptian shit, like whatever they're thinking, just throw it in there. A lot of the times it's fine. Mm-hmm. Some of the time it's not fine. So it's just, right. Yeah. But it like it is kind of like a charming thing that also sometimes is really bad about animation of this era where they can do that and they can just skip through it because then you're just seeing like a very charged image about a certain thing. Mm-hmm. And then it goes by so fast, but you're still like, yeah the egyptians or you know yeah and it just like it does fire your imagination because mm-hmm. they're just giving you like a super taste of something right and then moving on yeah I'm like, but i want to know more about that like that's all oh, like there's so much i'm like learning and like touching on right even if it's you're not really yeah because it, it it just rolls right by a bunch of little like interesting ideas of how people live their lives like Oh, we follow the constellations to know when to harvest and all these things. And it's just like flying through this information. You're like, oh, wait, hold on. I want to think up. There's no time to think about that because we're getting to Mars. Some of it too. I'm like, cite your sources. Like where? Oh, fair. And I will say I didn't look into it. But, you know, he's like a Draco means bad stuff or whatever. The stars Mm. turn into a dragon. And I'm like, I'm not fact checking this. Yeah. And I certainly wasn't at the time. And I don't think that's just not how this stuff was intended to be consumed. Right. But just today now, especially having done this type of work for journalistic institutions, I'm like, okay, but, you know, who, who are you sure? Like, is that actually true? Do you have a quote? Do you have a sort? Like, whatever. No. Well, this is the hurdle, <laughs> which is why everything in Disney now is just fantasy land or fantasy world stuff, because to tie something to reality brings a lot of baggage of responsibility. Yeah, there's some bad that yeah. doesn't work for like a kid's cartoon to like check your sources. Like don't set something in ancient Egypt cuz people are going to need you to be responsible for that. Like actually get story. your shit together. Yeah. Um, so it's like, well, you get a fantasy world with sand. Which is fine. at the box office. Right? John Carter. <laughs> I guess not a fantasy land. That's Mars. But anyway. Yeah, that's the real Mars as we know it. <laughs> Perfect segue. Okay. Um, all right. So we, we fly through time. We're moving through Europe and all over the world. There's a little bit of math. Uh, we arrive at like the Earth-centric view of, of the world and uh, this great little kind of like death metal moment of the Dark Ages just sort of like flies by the screen, which is really exciting. Really cool, some iconic imagery. Yeah. Under, underappreciated in its time and to this day probably. Mm-hmm. Like demon faces and like little bat wing creatures. It's pretty cool, actually. Yeah. There's a lot of cool stuff. This is all the section where we have flashbacks of, it's sort of the same thing as the Egypt section. And then he's like, you know, people who are more of like Columbus's time, I guess, mm-hmm. like pointing at the sky. But I really like that there's this one interlude where like this wealthy French gentleman or whatever is like on a date with his girlfriend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's just this ridiculously lavishly dressed, like covered in feathers. And he's like, 
romancing this woman, but also talking about how the sun is like boiling gold and it has all of these like blind people that live on it because it's so hot that they can't see it. And I'm just like, first of all, like why were people assuming or speculating that the sun had people on it? Right. That is, this is sort of unrelated to what's going on here, but I just thought that was interesting. It doesn't really answer that question. And I'm like, at what point did we decide that maybe stuff lived on the other planets? And like, why would we think that? I guess just because, I I don't know, I guess the human, in the same way, I don't know, you look at an outlet and see a face, like you look I at guess, another you're like, Earth that's a planet, round ball. It's got, in the same way we name, we, we say there are like lakes on the moon or, you know, oceans on the moon mm-hmm. or like, I guess it's just that idea, right? It's just. Oh, it must be like where I am. Yeah. <laughs> there must be one of me up there. I thought it was interesting. Another tangent. Yay. Mm-hmm. But they mentioned the, like, Barsoom and John Carter, like, they don't say John Carter specifically, but they talk about that that series and, like, that's, you know, maybe life on Mars is like this. Uh, and they talk about War of the Worlds. And I was surprised that they didn't talk about an H.G. Wells story that I read a long time ago that was about the moon. Not Mars, but the moon. But it was, like... A lot of weird stuff happens on it, and these guys actually go to the moon during the story. But the big thing was that life on the moon is always kind of tied to the, like, the like basically you can never see it from Earth. And it's, like, cyclical. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, I, I don't remember if it's on the dark side or the light side or exactly how it works, but it's, mm-hmm. like, the back side of the moon or something like that. Like, plants will grow overnight and just go right away. And that's why you never see it. And then the aliens, I think, also live underground. So anytime that it's facing Earth, you would just never see anything because oh, it's, right. like, not. And I was like, what an interesting way around that for somebody who's just, like, you don't even know if we can go there yet. I'm like, you have this whole idea of how it could work. It's just kind of interesting right like the whole like theoretical physics and like mathematics like we we leave that's permissible now but like theoretical biology and like space cultures like people just theorizing off the top of their head based on what they're an expert on they're like oh yeah well if this then on the sun they would live like this and that's how <laughs> they it would, would all be, be blind because they're so close to the sun <laughs> yeah. I'm like okay sure and that guy's girlfriend's like he's really smart because he's talking <laughs> he has a lot of money <laughs> and he's got a big feather in his big fun hat i trust him yeah so there, there's some other authors, as we get a little deeper into this, um, there's a little Ray Bradbury energy in the later half of this. But I do, I do love the way this, for a while at least, starts to pull from history of literature. I have this book. I don't think it's here. It's called The, the History of Science Fiction. And basically, it's like a five-sentence block of text about almost every book in the canon of like science fiction, before, as far back as you could trace it to like... I think even the late 1600s. And it's just these great little synopsises of like, uh, like weird, weird plan arrives on earth, like possesses all humans, turns them into like a gelatinous <laughs> blob and, and then forms into a giant plan and returns to space. It's like mm. a description of a whole plot. And I, I feel like this whole section, this next section, as we travel to all the planets and get these like little glimpses of aliens it's all being pulled like from this weird history of like yeah. just surrealist thought, basically. It's yeah. like globby things forming into other things, things iterating out of something. And then um, visually, it's basically like every art principle is like being tested. There's like little symmetrical forms and stuff. I don't know if you ever looked at it that way as we watch like um, 
like something small eats something big. Yeah. Maybe I'm thinking that way because I would show this in like my cartooning classes. I'm yeah. like, I don't know. What are we doing today? I'm like, you guys are going to watch this weird special. You're going to love it. Yeah. And I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but it's really cool. Check this out. <laughs> so I started to like connect it to be, ah, the elements and principles of art. Each alien is somehow related no, to I one of those. No, I think that's true. But to me more, it would be like... This is how I would develop it. So I assume Ward Kimball is doing the exact same thing because we obviously are of a mind. Yeah. We're one. Yeah. And I'm just as talented. You would be best him. friends. Yeah. He, we, he'd love me. He'd be my mentor. Mm-hmm. Any, uh, <laughs> but it's to me, he's like, I don't know. What would be fun and cool that I haven't done before? Yeah. And just like every single alien be that. And a lot of the time, the animation that's happening does not have anything to do with the description of the alien, which is, like, yeah, still right. very far <laughs> off. But there's one uh, or a couple where it'll be like, oh, it's a lion with, like, 12 legs or whatever. And that's ostensibly what you're seeing on the screen. But then it does some weird thing that is not described. Right. And, like, the lion has a mouth that goes, like, all the way down its whole body. And, like, they don't say anything about that. And it's blue. Like, it's just whatever. Yeah. And the horse one, I think it's, like, supposed to be from the same planet. And it has eight legs. And that's the one where it like opens its big mouth and like another horse head comes out and then i think another horse head comes out of that one's mouth and that is not part of the description either that was just ward kimball being like you know it'd be fun yeah <laughs> i think it should have like several heads inside the- there's one uh i'll do a terrible job at recounting it because i don't remember it offhand but i remember that these are tiny little saw birds they have like little saws yeah. for beaks mm-hmm. and there's a huge creature and i think it eats it and then it like it saws the bird saws the huge creature in half from mm-hmm. inside and it's just like what is it like going makes on? a nest out of it yeah. yeah and that was just ward kimball being like anything can be anything like i this would be cool to do yeah i'm gonna do it like <laughs> and he sometimes like in that case he's creating like kind of a little like circle of life or like oh the thing kills the other thing yeah like, like this is in nature. an unexpected way um and they're all like a lot of them are kind of dark or like they're cacophonous like the sound effects of some of them are like they're very loud. Like there's there's one that's these – I can't even remember. I, I wish I – I was going to write them all down. I'm like, that's too much. I don't even know how to describe these things. But there's ones that are like trumpeting sounds and it's just very, very loud. And I, I remember it as a kid and it just being like kind of upsettingly yeah. loud because it was a sound you wouldn't just see in a normal Disney cartoon because you wouldn't see yeah. creatures like this. There's an unnerving quality to some of these animations that reminds me of how I didn't like Alice in Wonderland. I was going to say, it feels exactly like that energy yeah. of like weird sound, weird like character yeah. motion. And you're just like, uh, like it just makes me feel a little ill. Just a little, a little. bit, but not in not like a, uh, right. I was going to say, it's like not, <laughs> not quite the, that kind of like David Cronenberg biology morphine thing. Yeah, it's more but just it like, is a little little like, sensor, like a little uncanny valley or yeah. something where I'm like, eh. and I think some of it is, I get that when um, like creatures are eating other creatures. I right. think there's something about that that might just be like pure horror of the universe and how it works or something like that. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. If right. I had to guess, it might be something like that where I'm like, otherwise it's fine, but I'm just, part of me is like, oh my God, like we're living hell. Yeah, it's like this... <laughs> And it, it's kind of, it's part of that comedic timing that a lot of the little segments do. Like, we meet a character, it does a funny thing, then it goes a little longer and it does another weird thing. And it's like, <laughs> so whoa, like, and then it cuts Do to I the like next it or one. am I like, yeah. no thanks? Right. And it's like kind of funny because it's either slow or there's been a beat. So you're like, this must be a joke. Oh, it's not <laughs> it's really a, a kind joke. kind of horrifying. <laughs> it's like the camera lingered too long. Yeah, like, like I wish we'd cut just a second <laughs> earlier. Yeah, it'd be like if you were watching a nature special. It's like, ah, the majestic, like, 
dolphin like jumps and then it's like starts having sex with something that's exactly (laughs) right yeah you're like okay i understand that it happens but just i don't need it in my national geographic special not right now i'm a prude about this no dolphin sex yeah this is this is 1957 i have three channels on my brand new tv there was no this sex is, on television at that time. It was yeah, a very boring not, right? time for everyone, including dolphins. It's weird to think this is this was like mainstream content. Like this was if you only had Netflix and there were three movies on there at any given time, you'd have to watch one of the three. And this was that for one night. Like so many people yeah. must have watched it, right? I would love to know. I like, wish I don't we had know the what data the numbers in are, front yeah. of us. Yeah. But it must be high because – like how many again? Like how many channels were there? Right? It's yeah, like, not many. This is CBS. I'm yeah, and it was just on because like I the only numbers I'm sort of familiar with are like the opening day of Disney World numbers, which were like mm-hmm. substantial. Yeah, like so many millions of people, whatever, like watch that. This was not too long before. That's some weird shit. Listeners, if you watch this in nineteen, was it fifty four? Fifty seven. Fifty seven. If you watch December fourth, nineteen fifty seven. Uh, I was going to say, like, it's almost Colin. your birthday. It's not. Yeah, but, like, <laughs> let me know. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Um, all right, what's the next scene? Well, I want to talk about... Or where, where, yeah, where do you um, want to go? This really ridiculous and... It's not even offensive, which is funny that I say that because I feel like I'm, like, waiting for it to offend me and it doesn't really, but I also don't really like it that much. And it's this this plot... It's just, I'm like, why is this in this? It's so strange. There's like a five-minute segment of animation dedicated to some super smart guy that just sits there. And then his secretary, mm-hmm. who is like, and the, the voiceover is like, she's very attractive. And she has like yeah, a, a martini. Madman like, yeah. <laughs> she's got a martini and she's just like, she looks dead in the eyes. And she's like, just like taking notes, I guess, on a typewriter or something. And she gets kidnapped by this alien and taken to Mars. And there's... This insane chase sequence ensues where he's like, (laughs) he's like chasing her through some kind of like dungeon area and like shooting her with laser and like actually killing her, it seems like multiple times. Like, and she's, what made me think about this is that she screams over and over again the same scream (laughs) consistently. And I'm like, I get annoyed every time, even though I'm like, I think they did this to be funny. But it's really annoying. Like, this is something that, like, if I was watching it at home, my dad would be like, what like, is that? Like, Turn that down. Yeah, like, yeah. that's so annoying because it's just the same thing. And, like. It's got a little Tom and Jerry energy, too, where it's yeah. just, like, running down a corridor that's, like, very plain. Yeah. With, like, the the white line work instead of black line work. You know, that's very Looney Tunes-ish to me. Well, yeah, like, it's just so gaggy, too. Right. But it's a weird gaggy. There's a lot of gags in it. Um, because she's just like, yeah, she gets a gun and she shoots him to kill him. I don't know where she gets she, a gun. She's it just empowered. happens to be there. I think that and Ward Kimball was very proud that he like made the woman the superhero this in this. This is progressive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, then she gets back and the guy's like, oh, I've been thinking this whole time. And like, definitely there's no aliens on Mars. And she's just like, okay. Yeah. And then we also get the great parade of um, just like all the random yeah, aliens, these different just random more aliens. experimentation. What with... I love about that too is that like Donald Duck is in there. Like oh, it's right. a bunch of like crazy, like more weird aliens chasing her with like weird legs. And, and you know, Walt was like just... not, did not think that was funny. <laughs> that, yeah, this, get this out of here, Ward. It's <laughs> just normal Donald Duck is like, ah, just here also. It's real uh, multiverse energy before that was even a thing. This so is kind of like... Uh, just like proto Spider Verse, basically. That's true. That's why I like it so much. 
So, okay, something I was thinking about with this bit. So the way it kind of, it seems extremely abrupt, unless you listen really closely, it tries to connect these things by saying like, okay, the planets, we also don't know if aliens have come here all of a sudden. It's yeah, like, that's fair. Which is like of the time. Yeah. Um, because like what do you, you have like Invasion of the Body Snatchers as a book that had been adapted into a movie in the 50s and then in the South. Do you know Invasion of the Body Snatchers? If you don't know what Invasion of the Body Snatchers is, it's like- What does weird, it sound like? Yeah, it's fucking exactly <laughs> that. It's a weird plant that comes over and takes over your body Snatches and makes it. you freak out. Yeah. So like that kind of paranoia paired with like government, like- Paranoia, 1947 is Roswell, like that whole I was going to ask, like, when did that happen? Because, yeah, that yeah. has to be a big deal for right. people. So Roswell overshadows it, but I actually looked up another UFO. So this is, this, Roswell is like the big one, but there's actually a bunch of them. And there's some really funny headlines associated with one, this one. So if you, if you follow like UFO sighting stuff, in 1950, there's an even bigger event. It's way bigger than Roswell, but Roswell's just the famous one. In Farmington. Um, Farmington is not a catchy name, that's why. <laughs> March 18th, 1950. Uh, the city of Farmington is, experiences a massive US UFO sighting with uh, reports from hundreds of citizens across the city. Between March 16th and 18th, this happens. And uh, here's some of the headlines that happen that, that we see. Huge saucer armada jolts Farmington. It's a pretty good banner. The Santa Fe News reports Farmington invaded by Saucer Squadron. Wow, a whole squadron. And then the Las Vegas. This one this one's a little kind of sexy almost. The, the <laughs> Las Vegas Daily says spaceships cause sensation. Oh. <laughs> like are they like climbing up into your bed in the middle of the night? I and hope just... not. That would cause a sensation, but it would be not not sexy. It would no. not be a sexy sensation. Yeah. So um, th- this is this is this is like the beginning of. Oh, I guess it still went. I, f- I feel like even in the '90s, people were like, "Oh yeah, aliens could be anywhere." Oh, for sure. Moment. I feel you, like X Files was. Yeah. And I say this not having seen very much X Files, but I do, I feel like there was that energy where people right. are like, oh, "I do want to believe. Mm-hmm. I really do." Yeah. So I feel like that's the vibe of that scene. It's like they're like, "Well, we have to put in the UFO thing." And actually, I don't know if the so the robot that's chasing the woman, he's like this kind of great little, very like Tex Avery looking black outline, like jagged jaw. Yeah, it's kind of steampunky extra or stuff something. Attached, yeah. Yeah, like does he have a? Na- Do you know if he has a name? Because I think no. he's got like a Funko Pop or something. Really? I mean, yeah, I don't, I'm pretty he must sure. have some kind of designation, but no, not that I'm aware of. Yeah, I hope our show is someday popular enough where somebody's listening to this and they're just shouting the name of that stupid robot oh, at us I hope right now. So. It'd be nice. But it'd probably be like next mid-century if we make it 2150 yeah someone's found a, a thumb drive with all this our episodes playing on it. in the museums right now <laughs> you're like yeah no animators weren't cool <laughs> so true. yeah this is just like part of the evidence that proves the fact <laughs> definitely not cool okay so the, the woman becomes the superhero the scientist settles on his his uh theory that there are no aliens and then yeah he gets murked by the robot and that's yeah. cut so then what then what where do we go after that um interest i don't quite remember the transition but i believe then we go into like the origins of life oh that's a good place just back to the beginning yes i remember it uh like if i did not have 
it fresh in my mind as we speak, I would have thought that I was remembering it from Fantasia because there's a whole... Oh, it's very Fantasia. Yeah, a yeah. really cool sequence in Fantasia. Like, right before we get into the dinosaur thing where we're, like, in the ocean and then, like, mm-hmm. cellular life is developing. And I was like, damn, I really love this. Like, not many people talk about this. I am always distracted. Hopefully this isn't too much religion chat. But I'm always distracted in this old Disney stuff about how... They just talk about this like it's no big deal. And I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma where, like, I get for some reason a lot of people don't think evolution is a thing. Mm. What are you going to do? Yeah. Uh, very confusing to me. Uh, like, uh, with the the Disney kind of having this association of being, like, a tidy, like, Christian fundamental, like, whole thing, like, family, whatever thing, I just, like, oh, you guys can just talk about this stuff and nobody cares. Like, nobody was freaking out about it. I don't know. I don't know if that's like a thought that's going anywhere. But even in Fantasia, I'm surprised that you're like talking about life beginning in the oceans when like a lot of your core base, I feel like staunchly doesn't believe that. Or maybe that wasn't a controversy at that time because I really don't know. Well, I feel like it probably was. I, I like because I just would assume that's how people always were, right? It makes but maybe sense. the maybe I. Uh, well, now, like, the feedback loop is so short, you're like, well, I guess we got to put this actor in this Marvel movie because, like, the fans wanted this or, like, somebody didn't like this, so we'll, like, change the thing. But back then, like, what's the cycle of, like, Disney makes Fantasia? Do they even hear from those people? That, yeah, that, it's You know very, what I yeah. mean? Like, who's – what are they getting – what are they hearing? Are yeah. they screening these things even? It just even, must or? not be enough that the cultural backlash would be significant. Right. Like, is there even a platform for complaining about yeah. something? I don't know. I just like I would almost assume that America being so straight laced at that time. I do think that it's possible that in more recent decades and more of like in my lifetime that scientific thought sort of became more of an enemy for people culturally. Hmm. Yeah, and maybe true. it was like maybe people didn't really believe that, but at the time like nobody really cared. Right. That it wasn't much. doing any poli- it wasn't yeah. like the sides now, were- yeah, people might be like, Ugh, like I'm gonna like I'm aligning myself with some other I don't know. That's right. a whole different topic that for a different... No, you're right. I think it does come it down to that. It throws me every time, though. It's yeah. very strange. Right. Well, yeah, in the same way, like, cartoons, you know, we can watch this and we can appreciate it for what it is, but we can also see, like, the giant problems and, like, what it represents or what it what it leaves out is such a big thing yeah. that I feel like modern cartoons are, like, sweating to make up for, like, all the lost, like, opportunity to represent other types of people and other types of stories that we're not going to get anything that's kind of generically scientific in this way because we've like lost so much time with representation because it's so easy to turn everything into like something kind of political. Is there even like a space for that too? Honestly, like is there on the, even educational content is so flashy and like, I love nature shows and stuff like that, for example, but like, it's very interesting to read about how they make planet earth and like shows like that where they add a ton of, uh, like narrative they make up a lot of narrative not that they're making up literally what's happening but they will add a layer of like they make them into characters so that you care more and right. they even like add sound design to you know their mm-hmm. slow-mo shots or what like it's way more of a cinematic production than like here's nature and you're learning about how nature works mm-hmm. it's like everything has to be glamorized for us to really sit down and spend time with it yeah and that's just like this is funny they try to make it funny and they try to make it interesting but they it doesn't feel the same well it doesn't go on tv anyway well it's like we were talking about the, the work you did on the atlantic the, the 
the like episode or whatever you call it, the clip or the segment you made, like has almost a million views. Like Mars and Beyond just becomes what YouTube content is. Essentially, like educational yeah. Educational channels. Yeah, it's like or, YouTube is the TV yeah. to the streaming services being movies, essentially. Oh, God. And even the animation uh, style. Like, like I was saying, you know, I'm not a professional in any of this, but I, I do have some like – I can draw and I have some like basic graphical skills. I can use Adobe Premiere and I can teach a class or make like little animated shorts that are similar to this where they have things fade in and out uh-huh. or slide in very basic ways. So it's like this form of of conveying information has just been sort of like adopted by like just yeah. other other things that aren't. Yeah, and it is. Like it's the low budget streamers. thing because like I was making stuff like this for The Atlantic in like two weeks. Right. Ugh. Right, because there's no real cell art involved other than very specifically when yeah. you want to make a hand grab something or whatever or like a, a face yeah. emote. And it's like just more of the shrinkification of budgets. Like, I mean, I don't know what the budget was for stuff like this, but in the Cartoon Modern, they specifically say budgets for like half hour. I think it was like Rocky and Bullwinkle were like $8,000 for half hour, which was like maybe what a studio Jeez. would generally charge for a minute of animation. Yeah. So it's like that kind of thing where people are really, nobody's getting them. And then it's kind of the same thing for like, you're making a two minute thing for YouTube. You have, it's just you mm-hmm. and your computer. Yeah. Two weeks go. Right. And like, we just can do that now, but it's still like, it's a significant restriction. And you can see this Mars and Beyond being a little front loaded. Cause we get all these great, like little character scenes. And then suddenly, yeah, <laughs> We just transition as as the the movie gets into the origins of life. Everything's just basically like scientific illustrations uh, and yeah, gouache fading like and sliding around. I wanted to talk about this where I was like, "Can you pinpoint the exact point where the budget just, just falls. falls out of the bottom?" And it's like it's when the fish comes on the screen, and the only way it's animated is there's like a glassy plate, yeah, ripply, yeah. like the water. But yeah, it's like the lizard comes on land, and it just goes like whoop. And it's just like on the lights land. do not move. And then we have this whole sequence where it's literally just illustrations of creatures, dinosaurs generally, on a static background. Well, mm-hmm. it's like panning and scrolling and stuff is just like wah, like flying across the screen. Yeah, or like yeah, ripple transition. We have three more dinosaurs. Ripple transition to something, and it's like okay, you just full on ran out of money. And I guess like I could believe that partially they were like maybe this could be interesting or cool, but it's like. It might have been better if you didn't even have them animating. Like, why don't you just have them, like, sitting on a background? Like, right, they don't need to be, like, flying around, kind scaling of scaling in and out of the frame. And the, we, I, we are making fun of it, but there is something very beautiful in the, like, I would love to see, like, these matte paintings or, cause it's beautiful yeah. in that, like, um, old scientific illustration book and the kind of, like, Darwin studies, like, the Galapagos and, like, here's a rendering of, like, oh, a, yeah. Uh, you know, plant matter or something. And the illustrations are really nice. Yeah. Like, it's like, if they were just by them, so you, some of them go by so quickly, you can't really mm-hmm. appreciate them. Um, but especially a lot of the dinosaurs are really cool. Yeah, it's got a very, like, children book, children's books of the time yeah. kind of painterly style. Like, some of it looks like Eric Carle to me. Not collage yeah. but just in, like, the proportions. Right, the kind of, the forms of the animals. Yeah. Like, the very kind of flatten, flattening of, like, the the mammals and stuff. Oh, now we get to spend time with this, like, paper doll. <laughs> right, yeah, just the, uh, a human the iconic man. Who's <laughs> just, like, clearly nude but tastefully shadowed. Just go, you know, and then we just talk about the horrible ways that he would die if he was exposed to the elements on various planets. Yeah, it's it's like, um, 
<laughs> you know, if you're if you're telling a story, there's the general rule of because of this, then this. Whereas this is a little more like this, then this, then this, <laughs> and he would die, then this, and but he like, would die <laughs> in a very soothing voice, and then. Five thousand years later, this. Yeah, and I, I do like that. This, but he's just like his, like he, he, his blood would boil immediately or whatever. But he's like so chill about it. Yeah, <laughs> like that sounds horrible. <laughs> and you don't really get to see that though because it's just a paper doll cut out of a man, like on a spooky background, right. Of like an ice planet or yeah. something. Like I imagine, like I think about this when I. So, like, when when I make a lesson on something and I'm talking a little bit about the history of like a topic that's related to my class i record all the audio first and then i have a couple ideas for visuals and then you just start to fill in the blanks with some stuff and you move things around a little more and a lot of this (laughs) is is. that just like you're like if we slowed every fade by like two seconds we kind of earn about four minutes of footage by (laughs) by just kind of transitioning in very slow ways that's hollywood magic yeah (laughs) that's That's the true magic And I assume they were still, like, having fun experimenting. I don't know. I don't know who did the backgrounds in this, but yeah. a lot of them were nice, question mark. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're just very pretty. It it does uh, – ha- it is like Fantasia on a budget, you're right, because later we get – when I think of Fantasia, I think uh, – well, I think of a lot of things, and someday we'll talk about all those things. Oh, we should do a Fantasia – okay. Well, we're yeah. definitely doing a Fantasia episode someday. Love Fantasia. Um, but, like, when the rain – any atmospheric effects, that's, like – the essence of the Disney masterpiece, like the kind of that era of like, how do we render a wave crashing or rain falling and like Mm -hmm. bouncing off a leaf that this short has gets into that a little bit. There's some scenes of earth, like, you know, being exposed to the elements and things developing and growing and you see some rain and you're like, Oh, Fantasia. And there's, there's even a little beautiful thing. Whenever there's a sun on the screen, you see like the glow well, there's the the radiant glow, but oh, then yeah. there's the kind of like magma forms like growing and popping. Uh, that's just so soothing to think about that. Um, I'm falling asleep right now. Well, it's like that oh, that thing you were saying about this being such like a warm blanket. Like yeah, everything it is. is like visually warm and soft and yeah. cozy. Like just a, even when he's talking about your blood boiling inside your body or whatever, you're like, I'm safe at home. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just learning. Paul Freeze is here in my house. <laughs> we're comfortable teaching me <laughs> oh to be in that situation all right uh let's, and then let's... we have mars right then we finally <laughs> arrive back at mars after we span the whole galaxy and time and space and everything oh yeah and i guess the whole pitch is like we could maybe live here because if you're going through all the other planets being like definitely not definitely not definitely not right and then, like, Mars, what we know is maybe we could do this. It yeah. wouldn't be great. I do like there's an optimistic situation where he's like, yeah, like, if we lived in pressurized houses, um, it would actually be, like, really normal. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> would it, though? Like, would it? I guess. And you do get a really cool vision of the future, like, mm. people in their, like, dome houses or whatever, dome cities. But right, still feels like a lot. It's funny because this is – when this is coming out, this is a beat right before, like – Philip K. Dick and all those those writers kind of tear down this like weird vision. It's like, mm-hmm. why the hell are we trying to do this? Like, yeah. it's, it's like a hellscape of like weird psychology to try, you know, like what becomes total recall, like this sort of like apocalyptic or dystopian version of space travel and how it gets instantly commodified by how shitty humans are. It's yeah. like, it's not going to just because your concept artist 
drew this amazing thing doesn't mean shitty people aren't going to live there. Well, yeah, right? <laughs> like, oh, it's going to be great. I do. I find it very unnerving, too, at this point that it's like the VO is like and like figuring out how to live on Mars could be really important for us, like as as a species. And I was like, wait, what? Because like, we, did we throw already... all our trash in the, on the street yeah, still. Yeah, like, we don't recycle like, anything. I kind of I guess it's weird. Uh, this is more personal than anything else. But like, I, you know, at some point I learned that things were bad on Earth, but I don't remember exactly when. And like, when did we know? When yeah. did they know? And. How much did they, you know, how did, how much did they know? When do they know it? Like, I don't know. But yeah. yeah, like, what did you guys know at this point where you were like, hmm, we might need to get to Mars or we're going to be dead. I mean, maybe was it like nuclear war? Was it like World War II? And they were well, like, oh exactly. my God, There's everything that. is so bad. We got to peace out to my, things will be better when we live in dome cities on Mars. Maybe it, maybe people thought it was inevitable because this is even like years before the EPA is developed, which is like a giant deal oh, in the God. 60s. Yeah. So people are just throwing their trash on the street. So maybe everybody's like, well, we'll ruin this planet because that's that's our like manifest destiny. And then we'll like jump <laughs> Mario <laughs> style to the next one over. <laughs> and here's how we're going to do it. Walt yeah. Disney, sign his name to this. Walt Disney, who's your, Ward Kimball? That's the guy? All right, have him start drawing it up because we are, we got about... 40 years here. The, the, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> I'm just stuck on the cynical path of it all. But um, like some of the the magic that kind of, I think, draws animators and like visual artists to this. Some A fact I want to dig into a little deeper at some point is I heard the first film camera, the development of like what became like the motion picture, not just like a still image, was built with the intent to photograph, uh, I think, Uranus. Or one of those distant planets. So I'm like, there's always been this kind of like, you know, science and the arts. And like Walt Disney was so like obviously invested in the camera. And when we talk about some other Disney movies, we'll talk about like his camera technologies and how he was like so progressive in like a very George Lucas-y type of way with that stuff. But just the way they they show some of these planets and these renderings, it almost feels like we're looking at it under a microscope. And there's so much telescope talk like – the lens is so important to this story, um, which just, you know, we can be like, oh, it's kind of propaganda for Disneyland or like the government or NASA or whatever, or like getting off Earth because we're ruining it. But also it's <laughs> it's just like, oh, well, and like his crew had a cinematic eye. And this is like a, a thing that yeah, you can show in a great way. I through. thought it was interesting, too, that they mentioned at one point that like you can't. Like, we can't really get a good picture of Mars because we have to use long exposure times. Mm -hmm. And then the atmosphere of Earth is constantly, like, in flux and it interferes with the photo. So if we could take just, like, an instant snapshot, that wouldn't be a problem. But we need more time to get a better picture. So all of our pictures are just only so good because of that. And I was like, oh, so you guys went out of your way to explain, like, and here's why our pictures aren't that great. Uh, and I know they weren't. And here's doing why it our just theories for... suck. Because <laughs> it was just like that was interesting to consider, and also like how like that's where their technology was at that time. Yeah, I don't know about you, but like because of that, they spend a decent amount of time talking about like Mars maybe having these canals on it, because, right? Because uh, in our photos and you know in in what we can see, there's these big green spots, and then it what it looks like these green stripes, like striations over the planet. And some people think maybe, like, it's a dying civilization. They're irrigating their planet or, you know, it's, like, not man-made, but 
you know, like made canals and stuff like that. And I had no idea that was even a thing at all because nobody ever talked about that when I was learning about Mars, I guess. Yeah. And I just kind of assume it's because we were just beyond that already. And so watching this, I was like, whoa, like there was a time when we thought Mars had like splotchy stuff all over it. And we thought like there was canals up there. Well, it's just totally alien. Well, to did me. you did no you read intended. Martian Chronicles? Yes. So that I feel Only like that's a couple years ago though. Okay. Well, that's kind of like an inciting incident for I feel like that story because some of that story is about the canals and yeah, I, and the way like the Martian like culture grew up around that in kind of like an Egyptian way. It's you know it's like living along the the water. Um, the Nile. So it must have Mars. just in the 50s that yeah, that just, narrative just must have been important because Martian Chronicles is, uh, I think, 54 or 55. It came out. Wow. Predates this. Yeah. Well, yeah, because later, right. Well, then here's where it gets interesting in a way I didn't realize before. So basically, once we get past all the, the sliding masterpieces scene, then we just get some old guy who knows what his name is, might also be yeah, Eisenhower. Yeah, we're in the boring part of the... Yeah, where a man just sort of reads off a card at us. Um, a man we don't know and have no vested interest in. <laughs> and we refuse to ever invest <laughs> anything in him. Turn this off. <laughs> but after this scene, we get back to some animated stuff. And this is where I start to see... A bit of like the Epcot initiative emerging because it's like, okay, well, maybe Walt Disney can't like build his colony on Mars. But you know what he can do is like buy some swamp in Florida and build like. (laughs) Which is almost the same thing. But it kind of. Right. Yeah. It's like an uninhabited like (laughs) you can't live here otherwise unless we build this perfect like it doesn't need to be pressurized. Um, You don't need to pump in air. But like you do need to design it in a a perfect way. Right. Like the Epcot vision. Kind of looks like the Mars experiment that they show with it in this, uh, in a little way. You know what I mean? No, that's you can true. kind of see it the train of that, thought like, leading there. The modern world and like the future. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just kind of interesting because they do kind of play at a bit of the Ray Bradbury Martian Chronicles where they're like, Maybe when we arrive, we'll see the wreckages of a Martian culture. And that's like exactly Martian Chronicles, like Uh touching and like the ghosts of the Martian past, like what the astronauts discover. Um, They really touch on that. And then Ray Bradbury becomes the, um, writes the script for what becomes Spaceship Earth at Epcot. Oh, yeah. So like he inevitably, a science fiction writer, like becomes tied to like a Disney project Forever, like it, I think the script has been reworked a bit, and now they're turning it into like a Moana thing. But um, what for a long time it was just like Ray Bradbury's writing, crazy. Um, read by like different people, like Judy Dench, I think reads it for a couple of years, but it's Ray Bradbury, the so female just, Ray Bradbury. <laughs> yeah, that's what I've always <laughs> called her. But um, I just always thought that was interesting. There's kind of like a not a closed loop on it all, but like all these little these pieces coming together. It's like, I don't want to keep going for too far down that tangent, but I do wonder, like, when did that start? Because obviously Disney wasn't, like, so obsessed with the future and, like, cha- like making his weird dream city or whatever. I'm like, when did you get this idea? I don't know. And I feel like he died before he could really do a lot with it. Yeah, like, when do you jump from – I don't know. Well, this is why I like I always want to – I am I like to think about his train of thought because, okay, you capture your, like, Midwest – perfect town in Main Street Disney, then you make these kind of like narrative spaces for Frontierland and Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. And Tomorrowland becomes the one 
that I, I remember Ward Kimball in a little quote, I think it was by him saying, Tomorrowland was the hardest one for them to kind of highlight because what is Tomorrowland? We don't know. Whereas Frontierland, <laughs> it's like, well, Davy Crockett, we have all the yeah. stories. Um, but front, Tomorrowland is the one that is always changing that they could never really figure out how to like give the elevator pitch on it. So I think that weird little gap becomes what Epcot is, right? Yeah. It's like, because the Tomorrowland of Disneyland and Disney World is just stuck. So I, maybe Walt Disney's like, well, what if I made a whole thing Tomorrowland and then, but how do we pay for it? It's like, well, we have to build another like Magic Kingdom and then we have to get Kodak and everybody to sponsor these yeah, things. So it gets tied to economics, but. Well, honestly, also, it also kind of feels like he became so obsessed with answering that question that he was like, I'll just figure it out. Like, I'll just figure <laughs> out what tomorrow is. Right. And then he was like, well, I'll live in like the perfect place in like Epcot and it'll be like the city of the future. Yeah. Like, I'm a genius. Yeah. Like for a guy who's always pinned to like, ah, the, the guy who loved the past and stuff. Like in a way, if he kept living and maybe didn't age and stayed, <laughs> stayed like. Didn't smoke it's as not much. Like, like we wouldn't call him progressive, right? But I feel like he did try to think forward or like he was like he, he won. He was like winning Academy Awards for like science documentary work in Hollywood. Like he was looking at the world and trying to show people yeah. what the world was like, even bef- even while he's like making these like entertainment pieces and like cartoon, you know. Yeah. Like he, he did seem like he wanted to kind of show people more than they could achieve on their own terms, right? Yeah. I feel like that's like a good way to lead your life. But something I like about him, but something that also guy. makes me uncomfortable. And like, I, I don't know exactly how to describe it, but yeah. I think it's because people like that do really interesting, um, great things a lot of the time, but they're also like very intense people a lot of the time and pushy. Right. Yeah. That's why I was like, there's no way he wasn't. And I know he was because people have written about it. But even just at guessing, I'm like, he definitely was like yelling and screaming at people yeah. all the time. Like, and he looks so nice and friendly, you know, up front. But there's no way he wasn't just losing it. Right. Constantly. And absolutely he was. Um, because that's like how people like that are. They're too intense and they're like so obsessive. And also like, I just like have all these big brain ideas and like I got to like push them and like you know i'm just hard line on it and something that i think is really interesting and i also kind of hate a lot of people talking about walt disney and like biographies and whatever will mention this little thing where if he didn't like something you're showing him something you're pitching him something and he didn't like it he wouldn't say anything he would just raise an eyebrow Mm. and he would just know that he hated it and i was like that sucks because like and people usually talk about it in this affectionate way and i think some of that is just like familiarity with a person and remembering old times and sometimes you even remember like getting into big fights with people fondly in a way stuff like that but like it's like this just feels so un like it's just insane to me i mean i don't think i could do that to somebody and convey the same way it's like the same thing that like steve jobs has this weird charisma that everybody talks about i think it's that and i like i'm like i don't know if this is a good thing but for some reason it just that's just part of the package with people like this who are thinking too much, I don't know, or something. And, like, right. so confident in their vision. And I just – I'm still very much of the mindset that I don't think that justifies you being an asshole. Right. So I'm like, really? Do you have to be, like, a smug little shit about it or can you be cool? But 
I don't know. I'm not Walt Disney. I, you know. Well, it's like I th- I think I I personally could be done, and I feel like we like to think we're over like the auteur theory of like, okay, well, this director is going to have to be a piece of shit, but that's how the masterpiece gets made. It's like, well, maybe there's enough masterpieces. You know, it's like maybe we can we need stop letting people do that because at the end of the day. Has it proven worth it overall? It's like, well, I don't know. Not really. Like, there's some great movies that were made by complete pieces of shit. But what have those movies really gotten us that, like, movies that are maybe not uh, made by people like that? Yeah, I just think nobody's given enough time and resources to testing the theory that you can be chill and also make a great movie. Yeah. Like, do you have to be a rabid tyrant? Or is that just how everything has been set up? Uh, I so think it's the way – it's like I, – I don't know. I Well, I feel like this. I don't know if you feel like this. But I feel like there's a conveyor belt that pushes you towards having to be an asshole to get your thing seen or get yeah. your thing done in a way where even the people who love you most are even going to have the time for you. You know? Like our culture in America doesn't naturally support – the creative visionary like they have to grab and take and walk on people to do it which sucks right yeah um but that just seems the way we're built whereas like well i've i i know i don't i always dip my toe into this because i know it exists but i don't know how to talk about it but like in europe in the way like creative fields work there Mm -hmm. the government and the culture supports that and things move a little slower do those things come to the top in the same way like we have like would we have is Europe ever going to make their Spider-Verse or these things that crackle with like an energy that inspires young people as much as like stuff does that comes out of America? Like probably not. Did a lot of people probably like get burnt out making Spider-Verse? Probably. But is it really great? Yeah. Could you do it at a slower pace? I don't know. Like, what do you think? I don't know. Even the pacing is not, I mean, because that is a different thing. And it's something I also don't like is like the crunch and how aggressive we are about that. But to me, I think you can have an environment like that and still have it be not super toxic. Like, I think there's a yeah. level of toxicity to it regardless because people right. should be taking care of themselves. But, like, people can have a vision and be focused and be breakneck, but you don't have to be, like, berated yeah. the whole time. I This is so funny. And I feel like I might have mentioned this when we were talking about Akira, but, like, I watched Titanic recently for the other time. Like, the first time in a long there was time. definitely a lot of titanic talk in akira yeah well and i just specifically remember reading that like people hated james cameron yeah. on that because he was so insane to people i'm like just reading the wikipedia page i was like somebody poisoned him with pcp and like a bunch of people on the crew with pcp during it because he was just like a disgruntled person right like people were pissed at james cameron and i was like yeah it's actually a really good movie like i I just went in, like, not having seen it since I was a kid. And I, I was like, this... I wish movies were made like this more. It well, kind of yeah. has this, like, bombastic energy to it that mm-hmm. is really kind of nice from that specific era of filmmaking. But I wish we could just do it without people needing to be tortured by the guy in charge. I don't know. It's just, like, it's... I have very mixed feelings about it. Yeah, I just... I don't know. I feel like I'm cynical a bit, and I don't know if I believe if something like Titanic gets made without that personality type. Yeah, somebody, yeah. You certainly need a very assertive personality. And the thing that sucks most of all is that personality type is really only allowed to like the James Cameron type or the Bill Gates type. It's like, 
white guys that probably came some from some kind of privilege that have uncomplicated like sexualities or like pasts or anything. They're just like driven by their stupid job and their camera. And they sort of like James Cameron is a visionary. He doesn't tell a great story. Like Titanic is kind of a plain story, but it's like told on a grand scale, yeah, right? It's not like sense. he's a great yeah. storyteller, but he's like a great visionary for what a movie can be experience can be right yeah um and it's true you're like wow i had a great time i don't know if i learned anything about the human condition watching this but <laughs> i i learned that movies fucking rule yeah like that was the titanic yeah. and I, would, I saw it right but how do we crack that formula of why do only james cameron's get to make it why can't like every other type of person in the universe make it i don't know but you know i'm sick of it <laughs> i tell you what let, if you know, listeners, please call us. Contact me personally. <laughs> so now you've got Eisenhower on the line. I feel like from earlier, right? Is he? Was oh he yeah. You? Oh, is and he now... been on hold this whole time? <laughs> Embarrassing. Well, maybe he has the answers. <sighs> maybe. Okay, I'll follow up on that. Or maybe he's just another James Cameron. So back to Mars. Oh, okay. And beyond. We don't really get beyond, do we, in this? Uh, no. In in the final scene, we build <laughs> these cute little, like, helicoptery things. They're like dandelion seeds. Yeah, they're cute. They kind of got an Alice in Wonderland look, too. If, if Alice in Wonderland was a cyberpunk story. Oh, yeah. Ooh, Alice in Wonderland <laughs> in space. Yeah. Yeah, when's that Alice in Wonderland reboot coming? Through the Milky Way. So, That's something. So we basically have like chiseled men, like truly masculine <laughs> like men with the buzz astronaut. Cuts. Yeah. <laughs> just over and over and over again. Buzz light years, just as far as the eye can see. Yep. And they're all looking through telescopes. They're all boarding their ships and they're traveling the 700,000 miles to Mars. It's like a 45 yes. day spiral. According <laughs> yep. To the- <laughs> As you, you could probably tell, I was watching it right now. Just take that away from it. Okay. But yeah, basically the, the ending sequence, we talked about this a little bit earlier, is I don't know how realistic it is. I really don't. I don't know how... Uh, oh, I haven't seen this happen. Have you? Rigor- the what? I haven't seen oh, this Oh, no. Happen. No, but I wonder how sound the science this was based oh, off of. Okay. I don't know. Right. And so the sequence is all about how, how could we actually go there? Like, what would it really look like? What would the numbers be? And they do. They're like, it would be this many days. And it, we would take this approach and we'd spiral around the planet so many times. And then it would go. Mm. And, yeah, there's this whole, like, we've designed or we will have designed. Again, not clear to me <laughs> how solidified this is. These, like, sort of mushroom shaped, like a flat top, mm-hmm. like T-shaped, the disc on top spaceships i guess that you would like ride the solar winds of the the sun mm-hmm. all the way to mars kind of spiral into mars and then people would land on mars but they would basically just drop a rocket from this thing to the surface the mm-hmm. whole thing itself wouldn't go to mars so that people could be in that rocket and they could take samples or whatever people do on mars who knows i've yeah. never been there and then they could get back on the rocket and go back up to the thing and I assume they would just sort of take the same route back home. Yeah, just follow your path back. Yeah, just simple. Unspiral back. Yeah, as far as I'm aware, we haven't done this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know what we're, like, what we're waiting on uh, because it seems like pretty well thought out here. Yeah, there's at least 10 minutes of footage. And I would say looking at it now and um, without listening to the narration, 
It's like Christopher Nolan level, like framing of some of these space shots. Like I was, I feel like you were talking about Interstellar (laughs) recently and looking at this now um, where the shuttles are landing or or like the the landing ship is like breaking free of the station and you just get these like great geometric crossbars as the thing kind of like slides. I'm like, yeah, this is, it looks good. It's like well-directed. And it's funny how Ward Kimball, the team knows, we're getting serious now, so the art style is notably different. Yeah, it becomes a lot more like, like photo- I don't know, Soviet era, <laughs> like airbrushed. Yeah, this is very There Will Come Soft Rain's uh, deep cut reference to an totally. old episode. Yeah, the, our favorite episode, most popular. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody loved it. Uh, it's not doing bad. Um, but yeah, kind of like airbrushy, like there's a lot of lighting effects, a lot of use of shading and stuff. It's, it's trying to like really capture what might be like a believable, almost like if this this would just be done, you know, in CGI today, obviously. It's yeah. it's what they're trying to capture, like if this was actual footage. Yeah, kind of. Like at the right? very end, it's like, whoa, who knows what it will be like beyond this. So I guess that's the beyond. I don't know. Yeah. But you see like flying saucers and like a big city on a planet. And mm. I guess that's us like branching out into the universe and we've achieved so much. Yeah. Uh, but it's all like super illuminated and there's just like glowing everywhere. Right. It's, yeah. A lot more into whereas like everything leading up to that is a lot more what you would. Oh, like NASA artwork from the 60s. So it right. just looks like a like an airbrushed rocket or whatever, yeah. like a yeah a handsome young gentleman, um, in a tiny little space pod, right, going about his space business. And I was I was interesting to, I was interesting to look up uh, when um do you know the Mars Attacks playing cards? It was like Tim Burton made a movie of them. Have you ever seen those? No. Uh, I don't think I know the. Playing do you know cards. the Mars Attacks character? It's yes. like a big brained alien. Yeah, with a that movie laser. gave me like horrible night terrors. As a yeah, kid. like it was not funny to me at all. I didn't realize it was a comedy until I was a teen. Oh, uh, really? Badly. Yeah, it was so scary to me. Okay. I'm afraid to watch it because yeah. I was like, it made me so uncomfortable. <laughs> so, the, listeners, there's a movie in, from the '90s directed by Tim Burton called Mars Attacks, which is basically where these cartoonish aliens like come out of the planet of Mars and their little 50 saucers come to Earth and like wreak havoc with their lasers. But it's based on a Topps collectible card series from the 1963 is the year. And that was the important thing. I was like, when did we get like sarcastic about Mars? Because it's like this short watching it now kind of represents the epitome of like pause it. Like we're going to Mars. The boys are doing it. It's earnest. Yeah. Ladies say goodbye and uh, have dinner ready because they'll be back soon. (laughs) This is the peak that and only, but once you get to the sixties, it's like, you know, what's there? Shitty aliens. And they're going to come back and melt your brains. I guess the Um, sixties, it makes sense for people. Yeah. Because once NASA is doing the thing, it's like, well, let's just make fun of it. Because now we're spending all this money as like people die in like impoverished like cities across the country. But it's like, yeah, we're going to space anyway, right? Like, like, woo, this is great. Yeah, there's a lot of backlash, but like at this point, 1957, Mars and Beyond, it's like Disney's like this. This is where we're going, and uh, forget everybody else. <laughs> I'm going at least. That's see ya, honey. <laughs> All right, return landing uh, gear out. We're back to Earth. <laughs> no, don't get out yet. Leave your seatbelt on. <laughs> it's too late. I've flown out at top speed. Well, Ira here, checking in and uh, with you to say goodbye. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard here in these transmissions from 
the outer reaches of our solar system, you can visit a website on Earth and check out our episode <laughs> archive and other facts at cartoonfeelings.com. Tweet at us or join us on Instagram and both of those you can find at Feeling Cartoons. And if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, no Wi-Fi in space, so again, gotta be on Earth. Uh, it would be super cool if you would consider going to Apple Podcasts and leaving us a review and or telling your cool friends about us and your uncool friends. All are welcome. Uh, and if you leave us a funny or cool review, we will consider and may even actually read it on the show as long as it's safe for work. I guess we didn't talk about that. Uh, do we have restrictions? At this point, whatever. We'll, we'll do whatever. What happens. And we'll yeah, do it in a Paul Freeze voice too. Oh, I, I'll never achieve that. I'll do my best. We'll work on it. Bye. Bye. <laughs>